0: My funny story is that in preparing for this, I bought my copy a long while ago. And as we were reading and preparing for this recording, I had like, I had tabs on it, Mm -hmm. my notes, and then I was going to take it to my office at work. And in between putting that book in my bag and then going to my office, it disappears. Not in my car, not in the garage, not in my office. If you are listening to this and you live in Southern California and you see a record of Lotus War, the Grey Witch, 25th anniversary filled with cat sticker tabs, give it back. <laughs>
1: Another episode of the Adventure Tomes. This is episode one. Uh, I am your host, uh, Grant, and with me is my co host, Paula. Hi. Hey, hey, I hope you're doing well tonight. Hope uh, those of you listening have listened to episode zero and got a little bit of a taste for what we're trying to do here. In our first episode, we are going to be reviewing the record of Lotus War, the Grey Witch light novel. Very first in that series.
0: I am so excited.
1: I know. I know it's a big one. This is <laughs> we're about to get into some formative works here. Uh, yeah. Um.
0: <laughs> I mean, this was kind of like a no-brainer like we had to tackle yeah. this book. So when our podcast we were trying to as we were thinking about it, the Legend of the Galactic Hero series, uh, light novels just came out and I had never read that before. I still haven't read it. I bought all of it. But then that's what got you and I started about, like, talking about formative genre literature works. Mm. And, again, if we're going to be talking about genre literature and tabletop gaming, we have to do Lodos. Right. Have to. Have to. Have to. Because it's so formative. So mm-hmm. what was your touchstone when it comes to Record of Lotos?
1: Oh, goodness. Well, um, so I experienced it uh, as many uh in our cohort probably did Uh, initially on saturday anime um they showed the first two or three episodes i want to say on saturday anime and i pretty much immediately set out trying to see more uh which mean which meant getting the tapes there it's a 13 episode ova so there were six tapes to collect it all i guess my most infamous thing is of course you know Back then, uh, VHS was you know twenty or twenty five dollars if you wanted it subbed. I, I wanted the dub. I was fine with the dub. But six tapes at twenty dollars a pop, you know plus tax, it was like somewhere in like the one thirty 130, one thirty five range. All things you know, and uh, I worked an entire summer cutting yards uh, to save up a hundred and. You know, twenty hundred and thirty dollars of nineteen nineties money. That's to, so uh, cute <laughs> to, to pay for this thirteen episode anime series that I'd only seen a couple episodes of. I loved it and watched it practically until those tapes melted. That was one of my first big series that I owned all of it, which was you know kind of rare at the time. Uh, but because it was a short, it was it was longer than just a film, but not like a full super long series. You know, thirteen episodes was was pretty manageable, even though it was still quite the expense. But I watched it over and over and over and over and over again. And then years later, I bought it on DVD. And I bought the Blu-rays that came out recently. Well, I say recently, a couple years ago. You know, I I bought it multiple times in multiple formats. But it was definitely, it was one of the things that excited my desire to roleplay. Because I was just discovering D&D in that space at the same time. It was very formative for me. Uh, I also discovered Slayers around the same time. Which is, Mm. these two are often discussed in tandem, right? But Lodos made me, like, I realized, like, they're doing D&D here. Like, I it was very clear to me, like, oh, this is D&D stuff. You know, dwarves and elves and wizards and, like, I, I get it. I get it. that's what we're doing here. It's it's very clear. And so the idea that, like, wow, you can do, like, serious stories and have them, like, produced by a studio. And they're, like, about, you know, wizards and knights and dragons, all the stuff that I think are cool. And it's very serious and it's very melodramatic and, and it, it takes itself in its world. Seriously, that was kind of mind blowing. Uh, because there's not really that many similar. I'd experienced the D and D cartoon a little bit, but it was kind of silly. You know, I'd seen like the Hobbit cartoon, which is also somewhat serious i guess but like n- nothing quite like Lotos. i don't think now we live in an era where i mean if you want dark fantasy like you know like if you want serious fantasy stuff all you had to do is ask like there's tons of it <laughs> but at the time there wasn't really a lot like it's and in that very specific D D, oof we talk about it being generic but it is a very specific vibe so i i was drawn to that immediately my friends and i would would uh, run campaigns in lodos no way yes but we weren't using D. We'll, we'll get to that later but okay, we, we okay. definitely were inspired to do that but yeah lodos was a huge huge hit it was one of the things that i really loved on saturday anime and i put in literal blood sweat and tears to collect all of it and you better believe i enjoyed it far beyond what most people probably did because i was like i'm going to watch all <laughs> of it and the gorgeous art and the music and this is just all of it i was i was completely floored by it
0: For me, like, um, in case you don't know Record of Lotus, it is a uh, franchise of fantasy novels by Ryo Mizuno based on the work he originally created, thanks Wikipedia, Um, (laughs) for a rules-free setting of a a tabletop RPG. And most folks hear of Record of Lotus because of the anime, the original OVA, because it came out in the
1: 90s. Mm -hmm. There is a full series, but we often don't, we don't talk about the heroic night. We don't, we just don't talk about it
0: yeah which is wild um the, op-
1: the opening's great that's about i only i only i bought all of the ova tapes i only bought one of the heroic night, heroic tapes that night. I yeah that's yeah, pretty it's... much it
0: yeah for me like my my touchstone for record of lotus war was the anime as well but it wasn't mm-hmm. it was because of again i was that girlfriend and the, my guy friends were my boyfriend's friends <laughs> all anime nerds All, all like game nerds. Like, do you do in the '90s? Especially if you were, you know, Asian American, it wasn't on VHS. It was a fan sub Mm. that we watched on somebody's computer. They hooked to their TV, which was like, "Oh my god, how can you do that?"
1: (laughs) What sorcery (laughs) is this?
0: That's so cool. I loved it for the animation and for like the big fantasy of it all, Mm -hmm. and like the aesthetics. Killer. Oh, yeah. Absolutely killer. I love, like, I love the music, and it's true. I love how it takes, it was one of the first animes that took itself and its world seriously. But then, I'm going to call myself out here. What matters for me in Lotos was because of, like, my boyfriend liked it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that's that's totally valid reason to like something. Because.
0: Oh, man. I mean, like, again, a lot for me, I realize a lot of this is going to come from my research laid in with very, very personal experience, because that's kind of just how I see things in the world. Mm -hmm. But the reason why, like, I, you know, had the Lotus poster on because my boyfriend loved it, but it didn't push my transformative, like, this was a transformative piece of media that's part of me, like, I, Mm. and then I watched it in college. And like like, oh yeah, this is actually really cool. And I still I still felt like I didn't because I didn't quite get the D and D aspect of it. Mm. Because everything's like, I feel like this is I'm very much it was very much like I'm watching somebody else's story. Sure. There's a there's context and adventure here that I'm not quite getting because yeah. it moved around too much. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, cool, but like the animation was just so amazing to me that I that's that's what got me hooked and that's why I still like it. But I definitely need to re-watch those because I bought the Blu-ray recently mm-hmm. p- to prepare for reading the book. And I, I'm like, I need to watch this again because I, now that I have the context for it, I can definitely, I 100% appreciate it a lot better. Yeah. And the only reason why I'm saying this is because the anime that I compare it to is not Slayers. Was It's Magic Knight's Ray Earth. Mm. That anime... In particular, and that story in particular, because it was Magic Knights of Earth is by Mm -hmm. Clamp. It's shoujo manga. It has those RPG elements into it, but it was about these three girls. And because it's Clamp, it's tragic AF.
2: Ah yes. But it
0: also has Mecca. Right? Yeah. (laughs) Like. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Why isn't this the thing?
1: <laughs> it, it, right. Well, and I think it's important to note too that watching something because your significant other enjoys yeah. it is totally a valid reason <laughs> to enjoy things. Something I've done plenty of times. I guess what's fascinating is that you're the, like if you're just examining lotos like purely as like a storytelling mm. element and a plot, it may not necessarily knock your socks off. But when you have the game, like, this is something that when you understand the gaming component, mm-hmm. like, when you have that lens, the excitement becomes very apparent. Because when we were watching, and, like, we, we are, we're we we're tabletop gamers, and we're miniatures gamers. Like, I, I have very vivid memories of painting little Warhammer dwarves and watching Lodos battle scenes and rewinding, you know, yes. and, 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 and watching them again while painting. And one of the most common conversations, and especially because... I don't be like, oh, the geeks were all persecuted, but I'm not going to do all that. But <laughs> the rise of this sort of popularity of D&D and stuff like that, even when it was its biggest 30 and 40 years ago, it was still a very niche hobby. It even still is kind of niche, but it's really blowing up now. And there was not really a sense that, um, there was that D&D movie that, in the 90s that we don't talk about, um, <laughs> that, that, but there was this sense that like, we are telling these compelling stories that we find so engaging and there's no experience like this, Right. And wouldn't it be cool if we could make a movie out of our adventures? Like, that was a really common kind of discussion that we would have. Like, wouldn't it be so cool if we could make mm-hmm. a movie? Wouldn't it be so cool if they did a movie about this? Or wouldn't it be so cool if they did a movie like our games? And here comes right. Lotus, which is not necessarily the greatest story ever told, but it's so very clearly someone's D&D game. and Of course, then discovering as you're an adult. No, it's literally somebody else's D&D game. Yeah. Except they made a story out of it. They made books and they made anime. And it's like, oh my God, these people are living the dream, right? And so the excitement comes from this idea that wouldn't it be cool if if they made an anime out of our game? How cool would that be? And just the idea that somebody did it. Yes, right? the idea that somebody succeeded in the ultimate dream of turning their D and D game into this beloved media property, and it's like, oh, books are about it, and all the character, and like D and D, like mini uh, experiences that involve other people can have highs and lows and all that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. The idea that like you have these player characters who are like playing out a romance, like a true romance. With Deedlit and Parn, and okay, yes, you know, again, it's you know, it's not Hemingway, right? There, there's an attraction yeah. there, and they it's don't know how to voice awkward. it. It's a little, <laughs> but like the idea that like, the knowledge that there are two human beings sitting down playing D and D together, who are role playing out a romance, even if it's mm-hmm. pretty awkward, just sort of fumbling teenager romance, but the idea, that like, no, those are player characters, and they're like they're leaning into it. Wow! Like that, the prompt, like that kind yes. of drama, like because the reality at a lot of D and tables and a lot of gaming tables is there's a lot of horseplay and goofing off, and it can be hard to tell really serious stories, right? People want to be silly, and it's 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 really hard to turn to the person <laughs> that you just ordered pizza with and like look longingly into their eyes and say in character something like you know, Thranduil, will you be mine? Right? Like it could be, be hard to do <laughs> in, in, even in the best of circumstances. So the idea that like these players were sitting down and telling these dramatic stories with each other and able to pull it off. Like, wow, like that was such an exciting idea. And without that like role-playing context, I can see I'd be like, this is just like standard fantasy stuff and it's like, you know, it's whatever, but like... It's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Good animation. <laughs> but like, wow, when you like, when you have that component to it, the, the, the promise of that, that like, it, and it kind of is a vindicating thing. Like, no, our stories are good enough to be, like if you, if there was some money behind it, of course our our stories were... You know, the stories that you would tell as middle schoolers pretending to be elves and dwarves and stuff. But, you know, the idea that, like, no, we've got the chops too. And if somebody would just make an anime out of our stuff, it would be cool and people would love it. You know, it was all that kind of stuff. That, that kind of dream. I guess Lotos held, held a particular promise. Like, Slayers is often one that's brought up in the same conversation. Mm-hmm. And Slayers is very silly kind of fantasy gag. I mean, it also has dramatic moments and stuff. But Slayers is, is a little bit sillier and, and uh, it's less sort of melodramatic and of course the old running joke was that all game masters are are, are planning for lodos and the players give them slayers right like all game masters right. are, are wanting to tell these like grand dramatic stories and then the players get there and it's like we just want to kill stuff and get the gold and that's not always the case but it is <laughs> it, there's there's some truth there to that that kind of yeah that kind of setup. Um, oh
0: my god, just for context, like, yeah. just like, just in case if you're like, you've this is the first time I ever heard of lotos. So, like, record of Lotus Wars, like, their story is about Parn, son of a dishonored knight, and he goes on this, like, very epic adventure party. Slayers was like, how would you explain Slayers in, in comparison? Lena
1: and Gowrie are out to kill monsters and make money uh, like most <laughs> adventurers and they gather together a group of fellow goofballs who kill stuff and make money. It, it's the kind of, it's the classic gameplay loop but with a lot of silly kind of gags going on whereas Lotus has some comedy moments but it's, it doesn't doesn't really yeah it doesn't break kayfabe you know what i mean like Lotos is in the fiction and it's like this is a serious world and these people's lives matter and slayers is like shoot the fireball and run Ah!" you know that kind of stuff
0: yeah (laughs) god it's like how would you oh god how would you compare it's like if if lord of the rings was like record of Lotos, like slayers would be
1: slayers is a little more um um maybe in the vein of uh Willow. That's what I'm trying Willow. to say. Willow has a lot of oh, really God. funny, silly elements in it. And it has, you know, like the comedy bit about the the bird and the river and stuff like that. I don't know if it's quite a one-to-one comparison there. No,
0: it's not. It's not it, but the, in, this, in terms of, like, seriousness. Yeah,
1: like, Willow um, has a little more whimsy to it. Um, yes. And, lo, like, Lord Slayers of the Rings. is, like, nothing but. <laughs> yeah, Lord of the Rings and, like, like, Lotus might as well be, like, a historical documentary at times, right? Yes, like, totally. But, like... Slayers and Willow will sometimes kind of let you like like, "Yeah, like you know what we're doing here, folks." Like
0: <laughs> it's a little yeah, action very tongue comedy. Cheek.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, like I keep thinking, I mean, as looking at kind of like the history of Lotos, so it first came out um, as what's called a replay. It's mm-hmm. what we would, uh, what would we now consider like reading somebody's actual play. Right,
2: yeah, an yeah, actual reading,
0: play. Reading mm-hmm. um, a transcript of an actual play that came right. out in magazines. Mm-hmm. Again, this is the like, came out in the 1988. Yeah. Late 80s, early 90s, which again is wild to think about.
1: And I'm trying to think for context because you mentioned they used the term replay. Like I don't know if mm-hmm. we really had, the, as far as I'm aware, the term actual play only really came into use in the forum era, when people would mm. write up like, "Here's what's happening in our games," and call like these are and, and refer to them as actual play notes.
2: Oh, um, cool!
1: But like, I didn't know that. But like, re- yeah, that, that that's where I know it from. Now it may predate that, but like as far as I know, and like my pre-forum era, like being in like, and again, it's very localized. We didn't really have this notion of like you're going to read about someone else's game, you would give, Mm -hmm. you would you would like, there was an oral tradition. Like, let me tell you about this funny thing that happened. Or let me tell you about this thing I heard that happened. Or did you hear the story about the convention where this one guy did this, you know, that kind of stuff. But there wasn't Mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. idea of like, this idea of like, like writing up a narrative and like someone else reading it for their enjoyment. I don't know if that, like, again, they called them replays because we didn't really have a, I don't know if we really had a word for it. And I don't know if there was really a culture for that. There was definitely a culture yeah. of like, here's my game, like a game master writing a world, and like mm-hmm. reading about a world, like that's. There's mm-hmm. definitely some overlap there, but the idea that you're like reading another group's like, like a sort of prose version of their events, I'm not really sure if there was a, a tradition for that predating the forum era that I'm aware of.
0: Right, and then I mean it's interesting too because again, I didn't get into watching actual play like D D until 2017, mm-hmm. It's a critical role, which again, this current boom built on past like podcasts of Mm -hmm. the same ilk crit role is kind of like everyone's forefront and it's interesting because as we're recording this they critical role has their animated series come out Mm -hmm. of their first campaign and it everyone does and rightfully so talks about how groundbreaking this is and then we're sitting here holding record of lotus wars we're like
3: yeah, right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Not to um-actually people. Right. Because when I see the interviews of like, you know, the writers, which again, rightfully so, no one has ever done a serious fantasy based on a D&D campaign before with like all these fans behind it. And like, that's true in America. Right. We're holding, again, right. Record of Lotos War, started as a replay transcript of someone's actual D&D game,
2: mm-hmm. turned
0: into, uh, right now it's, this is like- 7C's released the official uh, translation of the no- like the novel as a whole in 2018
3: mm-hmm.
2: and
0: there's a little cuz for the 25th anniversary and I'm really god I'm really hoping they release all of it Me too. Um, cuz whether or not it's good or bad like I just I just want it all. I'm a collector yeah. in that
2: sense. <laughs> and I
0: want it in the same binding and the it's just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Hirotoshi Yasuda, who kind of like created the concept gives a little afterward and he talks about see, the Record of Lotus War, the Gray Witch, was released in Japan in April 10th, 1988. And at the time, even the tur- even the light novel genre was in blue. And light novel in Japan is kind of like our equivalent to YA, a uh, young mm-hmm. adult or middle grade book.
3: Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Yasuda was like the reason why he got into it because like he was like under deadline to translate Dragonlance which now I have to like start reading (laughs) because there's so much context and how intermingled like this cross-cultural situation is happening that's Mm -hmm. what I for me that's what I am incredibly fascinated about Mm. specifically like how Japan treats its media. And how much D&D informed lotos, and how that in turn informs D&D out here. Mm-hmm. And so let me see. Like The first novel itself was the brainchild of Ryo Mizuno, the author, and those of us who belong to group S&E. Mm-hmm. And S&E is like the publisher for all these other role-playing games and settings uh, for Japanese tabletop RPG, which is still a really strong niche community mm-hmm. in Japan. At one point, I will definitely put the links in whatever show notes we have to a digital bilingual journal in Japan specifically for Japanese tabletop RPG. It's kind of like wild. So the the series came out first as a, as a replay in magazines, then was novelized mm. in seven novels and then came out with tabletop settings and modules for folks to play in in the same world. That was Dungeons and Dragons, but then they created their own world, which Lotus is set w- set in, called Sword World RPG. Right. Which is his own setting, which I do want to see if I can get a fan translated version of, because I want to read to get that context. We
1: can talk systems in a bit. I'll, i I want to mention a few things about that, but but yeah, yes. keep, keep going.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. So as so, there's four light novels vo- out. Some of the volumes were originally published. Um, translated and published by Central Park Media back in the 90s mm. they pretty much like anime, like East Asian media at the time they were published as like pulp books mm. and, and things like that. They were the original American licensing for Revolutionary Girl Utena and Slayers and Project Ako and Demon City Shinjuku mm. like all these kind of formative anime titles and Lotus was originally licensed and translated by them and then they went bankrupt in like 2009. <laughs> and so I am actually on the hunt for trying to get those original Central Park Media <laughs> original paperback books to see the difference
1: yeah that'd be curious to see yeah
0: and so the 2018 25th edition version now that we have um seven c's licensing they came up with a really great book and which is what we read for this episode Mm. and uh we can talk about the book what you think of the book how do we analyze this book
1: do we want to do we want to talk about the system stuff or do we want to talk about? oh yes Okay, because I, I do have some, some thoughts there, but to, to not put too fine a point on it, Lotus is a really formative work across multiple vectors in terms of actual plays, in terms of adapting uh, stories to anime from games, in terms of creating role-playing games, in terms of the light novel space. Like, Lotus is formative in all of those areas. And then on top of that was hugely formative from, again, part of the Central Park media sort of stable to a lot of early anime fans. Like myself, I, I say early in, in a certain cohort of anime fans before the modern yeah. era, because um, there totally. were waves before us. Obviously, obviously, we stand on the shoulders of giants.
0: <laughs> Thank you, ICQ chats. <laughs>
1: It's interesting to talk about Lotus in terms of the system. So to, so to give some kind of mechanical role-playing background here, it started as a Dungeons & Dragons game, and it, it's been mentioned both in the copies here and also kind of in other interviews and stuff, that the group explored other systems as well, not just Dungeons & Dragons, but Tunnels and & Trolls and RuneQuest were, were some of the ones mentioned, and then before eventually making the Sword World RPG. So that's not really a surprising thing. Number one, some gamers will stick with the system for their entire life, but most gamers, especially game masters, will often and hunt around and look up rules and and try to explore new things. And most people have played a couple different systems. Dungeons & Dragons, obviously, is the the sort of er role-playing game released in 1974. But, of course, it spawned this entire genre. And D&D has always been the 800-pound gorilla in the room. It is the most notable and visible. You could argue that's because of its inherent... Great qualities. That's why it survived for fifty plus, you know, almost fifty years at this point. Some could say it's just a matter of brand recognition, or whatever. It, I'm sure that there's, you know, there's a variety of answers there. I still enjoy D D across its various editions. You know, especially fifth is a great edition. No, it's not a surprise to me that fifth edition is a very popular edition of Dungeons and Dragons. That being said, it had many imitators early on, and it's not a stretch to say that early D D is incredibly difficult to understand. Like if you have ever read original D or any of the the various, even calling, <laughs> even the numbering is a little funny, right? With fifth edition, like depending on how you number oh, it, yeah. Because there's a there's original D and D white box D and D, and then there's basic, and there's like three or four different versions of basic, uh, depending on if it was Holmes or Moldvay or or Cook or or Menser, and then you have. Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, which was just called Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, but many people refer to it as First Edition, and didn't really call it First Edition until Second Edition came out in the late 80s. It's very confusing. But D&D is this whole kind of... It doesn't really matter what edition look at it's kind of a mess like from a mechanical design standpoint especially the early editions it's like you roll all these funny dice and sometimes you're rolling high sometimes you're rolling low sometimes you're adding numbers sometimes it's a percentile check sometimes you're not rolling at all it's just whatever you make up and it's completely obtuse and bizarre and weird just, there's an infinite amount of stuff to learn because it's like impossible to figure out how the game is played, honestly. Um, it's often a game that was taught uh, rather than read. But it had a lot of imitators early on, and one of the reasons that it spawned imitators would be that uh, its use of these strange dice, right? The D20 being the iconic one, but all the um, uh, D&D dice other than the D6 are these funny platonic solids. And they're nowadays... And even twenty, thirty years ago, you could get you can get a you can go to, you know, a hobby shop and I mean you can go to Target right now and go yeah. get, you know, some dice for, I don't know, eight bucks, ten bucks, something like that, which is, you know, it's an expense, but it's reasonable, right? It's 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 nothing too wild. But forty years ago, I mean really pre nineties, truly, I would say, it was very, very difficult to get these dice. I mean, Gygax himself, uh, quite famously had to order them out of like a a math teacher's catalogue, I think. And they were very expensive. I think a set could cost like $30 in the 70s or the 80s, like $30 (laughs) or something a lot more money. I feel
0: like there was an anecdotal story of like how you had to like shave them down a little bit. Yes. Or something like that. Or they were like super sharp.
1: (laughs) Well, quite famously one of the primary ways that D&D got dice to people was through the box sets, like the the red box and so forth. Yeah, yeah. And some of the early dice even would have so you'd have the D20, right? And then the Mm -hmm. the numbers were sort of dug out of the faces and it would include a (laughs) white crayon and you're supposed to take that crayon and almost like you were doing an etching and sort of shave the wax into the numbers to color them yourself and then you would have a detour where you could see like the numbers were then filled oh with white my
2: God. yeah it
1: was it was quite primitive <laughs> and it's, it's it's really funny to think about like that even the effort to play the game you had to like go through these weird arcane steps just just to engage with this strange and wonderful game right and in fact uh, another funny anecdote i guess i'd say is that uh there are some modern games like dungeon crawl classics quite famously that have tried to replicate even that element by like dungeon crawl classics involves what are called Zochi dice. It's got like D thirties and D fourteens and all these really weird, bizarrely shaped dice that you have to special order and they're kind of expensive. But it's trying to evoke the feeling of trying to play this game as a kid in the 70s. Like, how am I supposed to get these weird dice like <laughs> to play the game? <laughs> But of course, it was a challenge to get everywhere, and it was also a challenge to get in Japan as well. You know, the D6, the six sided dice would be in most hobby games and most like mass market games, like Monopoly and stuff, uh, or even, you know, Backgammon used D6s, but none of these other weird dice. So, uh, Tunnels and Trolls is one of the early games that uh, was an imitator, I, I, I would say, but also it was trying to do its own thing, mm-hmm. entirely D6 based. It had even the concept of like, they call them saves still, but skill checks mm-hmm. early D and D doesn't have skills. For example, like it's, <laughs> it's weird to talk about now. You're like skills, like one of the primary ways you define a character. Like, yeah, D and D didn't have skills, uh, for a long time. And I think, uh, quite famously refer- <laughs> has no rules for resolving them and didn't even, um, I won't say the title of the book cause it's a little, uh, it's, it's not great to say these days, but, um, the uh, a later supplement introduced what they called non-weapon proficiencies
0: is that the like the adventures
1: yes uh okay. non-weapon proficiencies uh, which is to imply that well there's weapon proficiencies which we've talked about and i guess there's these things called non-weapon proficiencies like perception and all that kind of stuff which uh, shows you dnd's war game roots but tunnels tunnels and trolls doesn't surprise me because it uses primarily d6 it doesn't surprise me they went to that it's also a very light game it's pretty fun i would almost describe it DD as final fantasy in terms of its weird arcane mechanics and like stuff and very serious tone for the most part tunnels and trolls is kind of a dragon quest vibe like it has spells like take that you fiend and it, it uses all d6s and it's kind of silly and, and light-hearted but it's got i think the interesting thing about tunnels and trolls is that you know you think of d D like the each player rolling for initiative and monsters and like acting in a certain order and these like individual things tunnels and trolls the way it does it is like the whole all the monsters kind of roll together and make a big blob number and then all the players roll and make a big blob number and you kind of compare and like narrate what's happening in the exchange basically oh. so it's kind of a it's kind of a group system it's it's really it's interesting it's an interesting idea it's a little more narrative
0: I'm looking it up like right now to as my like context for myself because these are systems I have never heard of yeah
1: yeah Donald's and trolls of the of the early games tunnels and trolls has survived but it's not so, like the thing that made tunnels and trolls very popular particularly in britain mm. but really everywhere this was its its key feature but you can see its influence in a lot of british design particularly is that it, it was really really good for solo play the sort of the step oh. beyond choose your own adventure books they had these sort of procedural like if you did this go to step 40 and did this because it had this concept of not, they didn't call them skills. They called them saves because that's the term that D and D used. You know, you would have like, you know, luck saves or strength saves or you know, intelligence saves or whatever. Mm-hmm. In a way that mm-hmm. we we would understand them as skills, and then it had this really slick resolution mechanic that was so fast it was really really good for solo play like it was not hard for a person to run a party of four or five people in tunnels and trolls especially the earlier editions
0: i also noted like in the history of tunnels and trolls it was created by a public librarian Heck yes.
1: yes ken san andre yeah public librarian who quite famously uh read it and read D and was like this is neat i have no idea how to play though because it's completely obtuse and <laughs> uses all these funny dice so he specifically made an easier game that only used d6s that he could play with his friends and kind of get the same vibe
0: got it like, no surprise. You're right. It is no
1: surprise that... The no post- surprise. <laughs> for Lotus... Yes. And the interesting connection for RuneQuest... RuneQuest itself surprises me, because RuneQuest is uh, another quite early game. Uh, mm-hmm. 78 or 79, I want to say. Greg Stafford, uh, like, like many games and designers, it was a response to D&D. You know, it was very much like, no, D&D does it this way. This is how we do it. RuneQuest is the other direction. It's much crunchier. It's very much in the vein of, like... I mean, you have... Like, if you think of a and d character, they have hit points, right? They're just like a big bag of hit points. Yeah. And if you have 100 hit points, you're standing. If you have one hit point, you're standing. But as soon as you hit zero, you're down, right? It's like this mm. very like binary state. RuneQuest was quite famous for having skills, percentile-based, but also having stuff like like you have hit points based on like your left arm has so many hit points your right arm has so many hit points your legs do your head your chest does you have armor per location so you can like be very specific of like I got hit in the left arm and I'm injured there and I have to like I can't use that arm anymore it it is crunchier than D&D it's it's actually not as crunchy as it sounds it's actually quite elegant the way it all works but it does use D10s for a percentile system like you would roll you know a a 10 sided dice and get a 6 and roll another 10 sided dice and get a 3 and that's a 63 and you would check that against your Skill of maybe a seventy percent, and you, if you got under, equal or under your skill, you did it, right? It was hmm. uh, RuneQuest was, it was very elegant in that sense too. It was like, how good are you at like having a plus three at sneak? What does that mean? But having a fifty percent sneak means like fifty percent of the time I will successfully sneak, right? Like, yes, it's, it's a little more intuitive yeah, in yeah. that sense. And RuneQuest also has a very specific. I guess it surprises me because RuneQuest has this assumed setting of Glorantha, which is this very Bronze Age. I wouldn't even say Mediterranean. It's this huge setting. It's got all these gods. It has so much lore. But it's a very Bronze Age setting, and you have, like, cults, and you don't really have character classes. If you've played any of the Elder Scrolls games, you know, Morrowind, Oblivion, Skyrim, well, okay, well, that kind of, like, RuneQuest's whole thing was, like, no classes. You might have affiliations with cults that might give you certain abilities, but you develop your skills individually, right? Like, how do you, like, D&D, it's, like, how does your fighter get better? Well, they hit level two and they just get this kind of like, here's a buffet of random stuff you get at level two. But like Mm -hmm. with RuneQuest, it was like, okay, if you work hard at this, there's a chance it will increase, right? So it's very kind of direct feedback. Interesting. It surprises me that RuneQuest was an influence because uh, like the the, the move from D&D to Tunnels and Trolls makes more sense, but it doesn't surprise me in the bigger sense because RuneQuest is almost more... Known for what it inspired, because it it was the sort of foundation of the D-100 system, mm. which would then go on to power, a version of it powers King Arthur Pendragon, but more famously powers the Chaosium's basic role-playing system, and more importantly, Call of Cthulhu. Call of Cthulhu is the RPG from Chaosium. That's the one that pays the bills for sure. And it's also, as far as I'm aware and from photos I've seen of hobby shops in Japan and stuff, Call of Cthulhu is super, super popular over there in the RPG space. Yeah. Which isn't surprising. It's surprising. It's it's popular here too. But it's very much a... Um, ka- all of Chaosium's games, games are like this. But Call of Cthulhu was... Even though I'm not a huge Mythos guy... Call of Cthulhu was very much like a narrative and literary focused style of game. Mm. Even the idea of like your characters progressing. I mean, it's there, but it's really about telling these desperate stories of people against these, you know, eldritch horrors or whatever. And mm-hmm. um, you don't have like character classes and stuff per se. So, But that being a big influence doesn't surprise me simply because I know Call of Cthulhu is really big over there or is mm-hmm. is is relatively large by comparison within a very niche hobby. But it, it doesn't surprise me that they jumped around a bit. And But I, I think you can see, like I've read some, some fan translations of Sword World, the Mm -hmm. the game that they developed. It's very similar to Tunnels and Trolls in some aspects. I think you see most of those three of D&D, Tunnels and Trolls, and RuneQuest, that were mentioned as influences. I think you see the most tunnels and trolls influence. Okay, but it's definitely its own thing. It's a, it's a good little game. I think it's a cute little game. Um, I, I would like to play it one day. I don't know if it would offer a huge jump from the norm, but it would be fun to play. And of course, you never know a game until you really get in there with the weeds and, and try it out. But I, it's it's interesting.
0: I'm looking at like Group S and E's products that came out and they did make an original modified version of tunnels and trolls mm. called hyper tunnels and trolls which is awesome that's cool <laughs> that's really cool <laughs> and they translate oh they are the ones that translated the rule cyclopedia so it it might so if, there we go sometimes you might see because I have a copy I have a copy of the three volumes rule uh, Japanese version of rules and encyclopedia uh, just because I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure the illustrations are by Yutaka Izubuchi, who also did the illustrations for Record of Lotos. So mm-hmm. the art style looks similar,
1: right? It looks very. very it similar. also,
0: I mean, it also could be uh, Kino Nishimura, who also does the concept art for Capcom, and I think when uh, Capcom created games based on D and D, like Towers of Doom, I think is one.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like
0: she was also the concept artist, but that for me, it's again the way that it's fascinating. Again, the cross-cultural adaptations
2: mm-hmm. of what happens. Absolutely. And,
0: you know, as, again, we bring up Critical Role and, like, the fact that even Critical Role has not a book come out f- uh, for Legend of Box of Machina. They have, from their first campaign, they have their comic books with Dark Horse. They have mm-hmm. their TV show. Very much a transmedia platform. Mm-hmm. Japan, that's... J- transmedia rather mixed media is their bread and butter
1: right that's what they do right like yeah every, every, it's got the anime it's got the mobile game it's got the the video game it's got
0: the light novel series right it has the right. manga and i like finding kind of like the origin of things and so for mm-hmm. me getting the light novels is the origin of like this formative work of lotos. right and eventually i do want like want to check out sword world like i i would play that game with you <laughs>
1: Oh, absolutely. I will say, this is another random thought. I remember reading Sword World and thinking it was cool that it had a bunch of different types of magic. Mm -hmm. And in retrospect, finding out that RuneQuest was an influence doesn't surprise me. That's one of those things that may or may not be an influence. Because D&D doesn't really have different types of magic per se. It has different types of magic users. Yes. Like spells pretty much all do the same thing. And you're like, there's spell lists, but like the the classic divide is like the arcane spellcasters with magic users versus the sort of divine spellcasters like with the cleric, and then you know you might have the ranger who's or like a druid has certain spells or whatever, and they interact with magic in a different way. And the sorcerer interacts with magic in a different way. But, right. you know, a fireball from any one of them is all pretty much the same thing. And <laughs> there's there's plenty of instances where they can dip into each other's spell lists and there's really no problem there, right? right. Like if you can access a spell and you can just use it. But RuneQuest, uh, one of its big things was, because it's a very Bronze Age setting, very heavy magical setting. So the idea was that everybody could cast magic, even if it was just minor magic. Mm -hmm. It's like a warrior might sit down after a battle and cast a simple spell to sharpen their blade just to get out all the dings and dents and stuff after a fight. Like just little stuff. Or, you know, like a a cook might know a spell to start a fire. Mm -hmm. Little stuff like that. Maybe not everybody's necessarily running around shooting fireballs out of their fingers. (laughs) They might just know some, like the potential for everyone to cast magic was there. And usually magic was learned as tradition through cults. You had folk magic. And sorcery and every one of them had really weird and different approaches to how they cast and what they cast and even the idea of shooting a lightning bolt out of your fingers right that's a very D thing the blaster mage. Yeah. this sort of again coming from wargaming they were just artillery pieces in robes but <laughs> RuneQuest didn't really approach magic like that and you can see i remember sword world having a bunch of different magic systems and in retrospect that could be a legacy now i don't actually remember how sword world magic works uh, and i'm sure it doesn't really actually work like RuneQuest magic because it's its own kind of beast. But the idea of there being like lots of different magic rather than, well, it's all the same basic spells. It's really just like, do you have to memorize them? Do you keep right. them in a book? Do you keep them in a, you know, that kind of thing. Because D&D always approached it from that, that like magic was just like, there's some different flavoring, but really it's just like, okay, what do you have to do to get to the magic? Like that's really what D&D is concerned about. Mm-hmm. Whereas the RuneQuest and I guess Sword World Approach is more like you know, there's literally different kinds of magic. But that, I don't know how direct that line is because there's a lot of fantasy that does not take the D&D approach. Warhammer, the Elric stories by Michael Moorcock, all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of different versions in the fantasy space. So I don't know if it is 100% a direct line, but it wouldn't surprise me.
0: We're going to get into the actual book of The Grey Witch. Oh, we'll, we'll get there. We'll do that after the break. <laughs> <laughs> we will get that in break because there is a lot of stuff that comes up behind us because it is yeah. capital letters formative work. hmm mm-hmm. Another big motivation for doing this podcast, and especially starting with Lotos, is I'm going to make you read Magic Knights with Earth.
2: Okay. I'm down. It's gonna happen. I'm down for I'm it.
0: Gonna make you do it. <laughs> because there's aspects to Magic Knights, because it does build on that same RPG fantasy world. And now that you bring up in the way it treats magic, and I'm all like, ooh.
1: <laughs> I can't wait. Like I you know, I, I recently rewatched Escaflone, so I'm in I'm ready for some shoujo uh fantasy mecha. I'm all about it, right? Like, let's do it. Like I to
0: watch that that's another like there's certain touchstones that i still haven't gone around to yet i did just start reading dragon ball nice. it will happen good good we'll, we'll talk about we'll talk about <laughs> that time but yeah esclothona is another one of those that I, like i didn't touch at all it was like my touchstones for shojo mm-hmm. manga was for shojo, obviously sailor moon Sailor Moon is like my religion, but like Magic <laughs> Nights is like, this is my show. It was like Magic Knights, Ray Earth and Fushigi Yugi was like my overdramatic, mm-hmm. tragic shoujo manga series. Most folks I know will go to Utena as their mm-hmm. dramatic, super gay shoujo manga series. But yeah, mine was like Fushigi Yugi and Magic Knights. Ray <laughs> Earth. And now that I think about it, that explains a lot about me. <laughs> but yeah, Eskatho will definitely get around there as well. Because you think about these, again, mm-hmm. moments that you want to see yourself in these stories. For Lotus, now that I've definitely read the book, I'm like, okay, I can see where this is going now that I understand this a little bit. It's the system-wise now that I, I actually get it. So why don't, before uh, we'll get into the nitty gritty of the actual book of Record of Lotus War, The Grey Witch, Volume 1, published by Seven Seas Entertainment, after a quick break. We'll see you in the next time. Hi, this is Paula taking a second just to say we're a Q-Times production. Check out all the great games that make some great stories at Q-Times, that's Q-U-E-U-E-T-I-M-E-S on YouTube and Twitch. So we are back. We are back. We <laughs>
1: we're are. Far. We're back. We're back. <laughs> uh, to discuss... The book itself, now that we've, we've heard me ramble for a long time about Funny Shaped Dice. Listen, uh, <laughs> I could have listened
0: to you for hours about Funny Shaped Dice.
1: You're a glutton for punishment. Um, I... <laughs> <laughs> so, this, uh, this is the first book, The Grey Witch, and as you mentioned, there are seven books total in the series. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, for those of you who uh, have read along at home, uh, hopefully you have. I hope, I hope you're not we're not venturing too far into spoiler territory. If you haven't, go watch the anime, go watch the OVA, or at least read the book or something and come back to us. But this follows the story of an adventuring party, essentially. Parn, our young knight, uh, and his various friends and compatriots, Ato uh, the priest, Gim the dwarf, Slain the wizard, Deedlet the elf, and Woodchuck the thief as they sort of get wrapped up in the ongoing war on Lodos Island that's growing between these various forces, primarily headed up and led by sort of these luminary adventurers of a prior era. So a lot of the big power players at the macro level are former adventurers who all used to be friends and adventure together, not unlike our heroes, and they're sort of beset against each other. And each of the members of the party have their own motivations for joining, but ultimately Parn is kind of the central figure i guess that there's no he's clearly the lead like he and Deedlet are featured quite heavily on all the cover art and everything and they're featured in you know if you've watched the OVA right like the the opening movie is is the two of them in this amazingly wonderful and kind of sappy love song that I listen to it yeah, often. <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely would rewind the tape and listen to the opening a bunch before you know just being able to set something on on re- retweet or retweet. Wow. Set on on repeat. But so they're kind of the central figures, but it's it's definitely an ensemble cast. They're adventuring together and trying to stop the sort of machinations of Carla, the Gray Witch. Who you know again, spoiler alert. She's on the she's on the cover. Uh, she's in the, She's in the subheading <laughs> she's in a subheading <laughs> yeah but they're they're adventuring together and trying to thwart her plans and, and survive while adventuring and that's roughly the gist of the work and I would say that this covers the material of roughly the first six or seven episodes if memory serves it, they, they mm-hmm. hit about the halfway part of the OVA by the end of this novel yeah. so we, we do have some discussion questions and stuff but just kind of off the cuff here what, what did you think about it reading it here
0: reading it I 100% and still Uh, go putting on my librarian brain if I were to say got this as like a reader's advisory I would definitely put this in like the light novel that it is I'd totally put this in the young adult fantasy realm it's Mm. very easy to read in that Mm -hmm. you have a dramatis personae in the beginning just to give an example of who your main characters are it is like an adventuring party but it's not like so intense as say the lord of the rings which I still have not finished (laughs)
3: uh,
0: I get like partway through two towers and like I always fall asleep in the same spot. <laughs> it's real bad. I finished this essentially in a weekend, an equivalent to a weekend.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's
0: super easy to read, but you certainly have to have that same understanding. Like this is, a, you're reading a D&D adventuring party. Correct. Because yeah. there's so many jumps to like just deadpan. This is what happens. Mm. Like this is the exact cause and effect of what you just did. For me reading it like that, like, what's a record?
1: A record, if you will. Yeah.
0: Oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. It's right. That is true. It's in the title. It's oh, in no. the title. It really is a record. Oh, no.
1: Uh, you know, I, I laugh because one of my, one of the few YouTubers I watched, uh, Delarian Community College, he always, his, his joke, the professor's joke is always, Reading the card explains the card and here it's like reading the title explains the work like it's it's right there. Oh
0: god. <laughs> da. <Duh>. Yeah. <laughs>
1: But no, I get what you're saying. It is.
0: Yeah, it's like super, it's it's super direct.
1: There are mysteries, but there's no like internal mystery. Like, I wonder if I did the right thing or, or things like there's no like angst or, yes. or no, like questioning of motives. Did they really mean what they said there? You don't have that.
0: Yeah, it's not dramatic in its prose. That's, no, I think that's not. what I'm trying to say. It's not dramatic mm-hmm. in its prose. It's very much a record of what happened, mm-hmm. even to a point of like you're recording somebody's thoughts. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can get a little dry as you're reading it. Because you're like, oh, okay, so the, that just happened. But if you remember the concept of this being a d and game, mm. I could immediately go, oh, that's why. Because probably the dice rolled that way. And that's what created that decision. Right. And now you have this beautiful consequence of it. I'm like, right. okay, that's cool. And so the thing that stands out to me in reading it, my first impression was like the dialogue is what I like most about The Great Witch. I love the dialogue between mm. the characters. The prose itself is a little like Meh, because it's so direct.
1: Yeah, it, it's really interesting. And again, you mentioning like what you said, when you understand that it's a and d game. And like from that perspective, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm very, I'm kind of all over the place on it. Again, as a story, there's nothing like groundbreaking here necessarily. Yeah. Like it's not bad. But when you understand it from the context of a D and D game, it's quite exceptional. I think. Yes. If you were sitting next to a table, like sometimes somebody will say, "Well, I feel like my character would do this because they're probably nervous about this thing that happened in their past," and that's like, that's pretty darn good role playing like in the moment right and that's like Mm -hmm. you want that from your players and that's about the extent of it you don't want them to like stand up at the table and give a soliloquy because there's five other people sitting at the table and they want their turn (laughs) in the spotlight too so you get these just kind of like brief glimpses as if you were sitting at the table and somebody said oh Deedlet's thinking about her past and the elves are sort of wasting away like oh that's a really great little anecdote to bring up here that we're not just killing goblins or whatever like there's some melancholy here you know like so in that sense it's it's good D and D not be the most groundbreaking fiction necessarily but it is really good D D right it is good role playing. Mm-hmm. I guess the other layer that comes back to it, for me, this is very much comfort food. Something that I love very mm-hmm. deeply. I already love Lotus a lot. I can see the episodes playing in my mind while I'm... Yes. And I, can, I was pointing out, I was like, this is a little different than how it happened in the OVA. And this is a little, <laughs> you know, whatever. Even the structure of how the party gets together... Like why are we getting this like trickle of characters and we only get a brief bit with them and then they just kind of join up, yes. right? Like they're just like okay, I guess we're going.
0: <laughs> Everyone meets in a tavern.
1: <laughs> yeah, but yeah, from a D&D standpoint, they're not just meeting in a tavern. Like there's some pretty well thought out backstory here. Like there's there's a fine balance. Especially those of you who've played in the World of Darkness games, like Vampire the Masquerade, and Werewolf, and Mage, and all those games. If you've played in any of those games, they have a sort of a reputation of players showing up to the table with four pages, single-spaced backstory that they pre-typed beforehand. Like, boom, here's my OC's lore.
0: I mean, don't you do that with every OC that you do? (laughs) I mean, yes. (laughs) She hides away. world,
1: (laughs) World of Darkness is like has a rep for people having... Uh, a rather notoriously lengthy amount on all their stuff and because like as a game master you want your players to be invested but it's like if you show up to the table with 12 pages like i gotta read that and remember (laughs) that in the game like i'm trying to run a bunch of stuff here can you kind of make it punchy right you don't want them to just be like i don't know i'm bob the fighter like you don't want that but if it's like you know if i gotta read of 30 pages here i'm ted from ted talks (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's like I don't want you know that's a lot of homework for the game master and yeah. especially to track all that in play and you don't want your player to be like uh, did you not read my backstory on page 7 footnote 3 it's like I can't remember everything I'm not omniscient so you kind of want like a punchy backstory and in that sense the character development is really really good it's Very like good. especially as an older D&D player I can see the gears turning For example, I think Woodchuck is a terrific example of this. Woodchuck is clearly an older character, both in the anime and kind of how he's written, right? Like, he's been in prison for 20 years. Yes. Okay, he's been in prison for 20 years. As a character, there's so much to, like, (laughs) there would be so much to explore as a character, Or like being in prison for 20 years and like losing your life's ambition, right? It's definitely a motivator for him, but we don't spend too much time on it. Like we got to cover all the other characters' backstories too, right? right? But it's such a smart way. It's a smart piece of sort of writing tech, I think. Because when you think about beginning characters in dungeons and dragons they're not that powerful they can't really like if you're thinking of the fiction of this sort of like larger than life hero there's a reason most campaigns even like in the fifth edition era for example will start at least like level three so that you've got like a subclass already picked mm-hmm. you got a, maybe a feat or two under your belt you got a couple of hit points you can kind of take a hit
0: yep i started you guys at level five in our home game
1: yeah exactly first level is a little dire right it's yeah in, and and f- the thing is first level fifth edition d d isn't even as dire as it used to be, particularly the rule set that they would have been playing. The thieves quite famously start with like, horrible percentage all the cool things you think thieves do sneaking like breaking and entering and picking pockets their percentages to succeed on some of that stuff at first level is like one percent three percent they're like the only character that really has like anything approaching skills and those percentages are like miserable and they don't get good for five six levels and that's that's a long time in a game where you might have two hit points yeah. I mean I famously lost a dwarf fighter to leeches because I we walked <laughs> through a swamp <laughs> the DM rolled my perception and I didn't notice it and there was a leech on my my dwarf's leg leaking out a hit point per turn and at some point I just dropped dead a couple of feet Oh my away from the god. Yeah. yeah, it was brutal. Um so but it's a really smart bit of writing tech to be like how do I have a like an older character who would be in his 40s maybe who would have a lot of life experience but how do I frame him as being first level? Oh, he's been in prison for 20 years right his skills are a little rusty or he hasn't been on adventuring and leveling up like everybody else and he's you know so he's kind of like he's older but still first level like that's a really interesting like writing approach to solving what is clearly a problem like how do you have a, f- a starting character who's not young like parn it's easy to figure out why he or even deedlit like they're both like younger characters although you know deedlit is probably a little bit older as an elf or whatever but still it's like they're they're clearly young Characters in their society. Of course, they don't have all their training. Of course, they haven't leveled up a bunch. But, like, what about Woodchuck? Yeah. Slain. Like, why are they Gim, not yeah. more powerful? And, Gim, like, why aren't they more powerful? I can see Woodchuck's character, like, player solving that problem, right, through mm-hmm. that backstory. And that's really interesting to me. And it's really fascinating as a DD and role playing player. Like, how do you have an older character who's at an equal level of experience? But, from like a writing standpoint, it's like should we really reflect on this a little bit longer? Like you've been prison for twenty years; like it feels like that should be more than a couple of footnotes, right? Yeah.
0: As I'm reading through Lotos, I'm the same way as you. I'm picking out like that. No, that wasn't exactly the one to one. I remember from watching the OVA. The OVA opens episode one of them looking for what's his face uh, Wart.
1: Work, yeah, about to yeah, pass but, through the tunnel, right? That amazing right. shot of them all in the cloaks and the rain. oh yeah, an av- and then so they go in the, And they go into the tunnel with the – oh, it's such a great – so it's a really smart episode to open on too if you want to – but people. that doesn't happen
0: like – that doesn't happen until like literally chapter, what, four?
1: Yeah. Page
0: 161, you're already past like – you're almost past halfway through the like the actual original yeah. light novel.
1: And that whole fight with like the – green dragon i don't really think that, that wasn't happened. in. it's not
0: in the book at Just all
1: not even the thing that's something they added which was smart that was very
0: smart, smart. <laughs> captured everyone's attention
1: it's so fu- it's so funny that the only dungeon crawl present in the material isn't in the book yes <laughs> it's not it's only <laughs> it's really only in the ova i thought that was really funny too i was like wait a minute they don't even do a dungeon crawl
0: <laughs> not at all not at all um, but it's like, it's establishing the character dynamics, right? A dungeon crawl, Correct. like visually will establish that. Whereas in the book, you got time to do so. Yeah. You got some chapter time. And I'm sure like even around the table, you got the chapter time to do
1: Absolutely. It. You mentioned also that some of the crew here was part of translating Dragonlance. Yes. And Dragonlance thinking back on it also very clearly shows its influence here because Dragonlance was one of the first multimedia approaches for D&D. There were novels. There were modules that all linked this like grander story. Oh. There was like coloring books, all this kind of stuff. And Dragonlance was very heavily making dragons a big feature, this like big like majestic thing, and getting out of the dungeon, right? It was high fantasy, open world type stuff with a big kind of dramatic macro plot. Like clearly, Record of lotus War is doing its own thing, but you can kind of see the echoes there. I can see mm-hmm. somebody reading Dragonlance and going, "We will also tell a grand tale," because Lotus has a some really great shots of like giant dragons attacking and stuff like that's a big part mm-hmm. of it and like Dragonlance, that's a big thing too
0: yeah there's like repercussions of like an ancient kingdom that had dragons under their control
1: right right and like one of the big things for Dragonlance, not just doing another dungeon run to kill skeletons and get gold right like it's like we're gonna tell this grand epic right. through novels and through modules and all that so like thinking about it now even though it's called dungeons and dragons uh, there's not a lot of dungeons, but there's a lot of dragons, <laughs> you know, in the sort of in the fiction. And it's just funny to think that the one dungeon that's really in the story, at least thus far, is added to the tale uh, apocryphally by the OVA. <laughs>
0: it's true they're not necessarily like breaking ground since a lot of fantasy has to do with whenever we do deal with like fantasy we're dealing with the repercussions of a previous world right
2: sure which
0: is how we live it in real life you deal with the repercussions <laughs> of the generation before you mm-hmm. right and in this case for Lotos, they're dealing with what they call the demon wars
2: mm-hmm.
0: Yasuda, not the author but like one of the folks who created the concept for record of Lotos, noted it Everybody who has ha- who's touched Lotos as like a formative work remembers these words. Lotos was a remote island on a mm. fortnight's voyage south of the Alecras continent. Some people on the continent called Lotos the Cursed Island. The
1: cursed Island.
0: <sighs> that was like the overture narrative when you watch the OVA yeah. and you're like, what like it's like, oh, this is an epic tale. It's on the same level of like Rings of power.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, I know the OVA would always open with that, right? Every episode had that little bit, right? It very much reminded me of how like Chinese opera, like you have poems that are recited and things like that. Recitation of poetry can mark important moments in the story and is like a signal to the audience that, like, maybe there's a you know, something that's about to happen or a change in tone. It's like this, like, almost it's almost like ritual like, right? We're going to recite this, not rhyming poem, but it's almost like a poem, this kind of screed. We're going to go through every episode, right, to get started. And I like that the novel here started with it too. Lotus, the cursed island, the dub voice for that, it's just like seared into my brain, it's like seared into my subconscious.
0: (laughs) I mean, there's also like in part of the book, like, chapter four, when they got to the city of Zithallis.
1: Yeah, city of Allison. So
0: like at the part of the story, they do have a moment of reprieve. Like you should have after every adventuring, you should have mm-hmm. some like, you know, aftercare post-party. Mm-hmm. They killed the kobolds moment. And they <laughs> they have their own little epic poem written about them. Oh, no, not read really about them, but like that talked about the demon wars that especially sparked the whole thing. And like you said, the impetus of Lotos is that these former six heroes are now at war with each other mm-hmm. in their own separate kingdoms. And yeah, speaking of poetry in there, I mean, I think I was reading like in the afterwards, they noted that following books has that, which is why I want to hunt down all the original Central Park media book, has more of that epic poetry scattered in there.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah,
0: totally interesting. Again, it's in the same kind of storytelling vibe. Vibe, as most mm-hmm. fantasy books.
1: I really, really like, to comment on another Game Master's game, I really, really like the way this other group of six heroes of light is used in Lotus. Mm-hmm. Because I, you know, you think about more iconic, I guess, sort of reflections of the heroes in, say, Lord of the Rings, right? You have the Fellowship and then you have the nine wraiths, the Nazgul, and there's there's a competition there between these two groups of nine Whereas the Fellowship is present tense, trying to destroy the most powerful ring. You have the opposition being these monsters who all were themselves at one point corrupted by lesser rings. right? And there's a tension there because they are shadows of what we could become. These are dark reflections of what we could become and Mm -hmm. what we are being tempted to become. But there's some kind of a disconnect in a very Tolkien sense. right? There's a huge gap between them. The Nazgul and the Wraiths are... These ancient kings of yore, and there's a different vibe there because it's like it's literally like this ancient past coming back to get you. Whereas with Lodos, it's really interesting. You have a similar dynamic where you have these six adventurers, and you have the six heroes of light who are now the movers and shakers. But because they're not unlike, say, the the Ringwraiths, who are these ancient specters, the six heroes of light are all still alive, like in their like forties and fifties. They're not that far removed. And to me, as the reader and as the viewer, it adds this extra layer of tension of they all were friends questing to save the world too at one point, yeah, and they save the world. And look what happened. They're coming to blows. They're, they're warring with each other. The tension and the cloud hanging over the party then isn't going to say Lord of the Rings where it's like my moral failings will turn me into this like horrible shade you know, serving a, a fiery volcano eye. But instead, it's like there's this tension of, well, what if Harn and Deedlet end up crossing blades one day? Yeah. Would that not be the great tragedy, right? Or if, if Woodchuck and Gim were at each other's throats? And after they save the world, and it comes to that, like what a terrible tragedy, and like what a cautionary tale. And it's that immediacy that I really, really like. It is a legacy element, but it's not so far removed. It's very, very personal and immediate and right there.
0: Yeah. I and mean, when you talk about like the final battle, when you do see King Fawn literally light and darkness coming to blows. And mm-hmm. again, I I love the way villains are antagonists, not necessarily villains, mm-hmm. are written in Japanese storytelling because you definitely it's you see the the difference in motivation as opposed to just pure black and white villainy oftentimes
1: mhm absolutely
0: and so even with bell they took the time to explain that the antagonist here is not necessarily like, it's not pure, you know, Bell is the demon lord and wants to conquer all of Lotos and mm. Fawn wants to just bring peace to all Lotos. That's the black and white version. The real antagonist here is Carla, the gray mm. witch, who is like, we can't have a single power ever. And I need to continually create conflict so that not one side has a different power, in which I love that they're like, you have to have shades of gray. But that, shapes of the Grey, continues to have conflict, and that's what brings heartbreak to all these people when you it's so... You don't... I mean, we're experiencing right now. We're in the... We're still, like, year two, three.
3: <laughs> two, <laughs> oh God, two plus.
2: Of
0: being in the middle of global <laughs> pandemic. And, you know, we have no constant. It's hard to have something that's constant. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just need constant.
2: <laughs> right, right.
0: And... You know, I didn't. You know, I didn't even like think about it until I mentioned it. Now it's like that, one hundred percent. Like, oh, that's why nobody likes Carla, right? That's why people are so angry about Carla because she's not <laughs> right. She can't do anything but. Bring conflict. Her core belief is not one side. We can't have power concentrated into one. Because if you just put all your eggs in one basket, that basket's gonna get blown away. Mm-hmm. And there go all your eggs.
1: And she's not wrong, but nobody likes a both sides are right? Nobody, well, both yes. sides. Like come on. Yeah, right? she, like, she's <laughs> definitely a, a side. both
0: sides are right. Oh my god, that's so true.
1: Oh and god, there's, god, I Carla. think there's, there's Of course her is Carla. Pres- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's also that interesting perspective of again, at one point Carla was herself an adventurer out to save the world, right? But like Wart also kind of falls into this interesting spot and, and Beld and Fawn too to various degrees, but they're so high level now, quite literally but like, they only see the world in the macro sense. They no longer focus that much on the individual, right? It, it, it's what has to be done, what must be done, mm-hmm. right? Wart has to have this weird sort of ceasefire with Carla because who knows what the ramifications could be if they really went to blows, right? Mm-hmm. And Carla has to keep the balance and Beld has to try to bring order and Fawn has to move to try to protect the current order and all this kind of stuff. Whereas our plucky adventurers don't see the world in the macro sense. They care about the people. They're not saving you know Fawn's daughter because that will help the war with more. I mean Parn maybe a little bit it's like oh this will help the war. but like they're really just like someone's in trouble we gotta save them and right. war is bad because people die in war right like they're still in the the micro sense and they still have that grounded perspective that these macro level heroes with their magic swords and their high-level spells, no longer, I mean, fawn a little bit, but even still, they're concerned with the movements of nations and and dragons and and all that kind of stuff. So it's another kind of interesting texture there. Like, of course, they're coming into conflict because they have completely different perspectives on the world.
0: Right. I mean, think uh, Gim's particular motivation is, like, he wants to save uh, the daughter of... because he feels responsible. Mm -hmm. If the priestess niece who is one of the old, like one of the former heroes, wasn't called away to help him, her daughter wouldn't have been taken over by Carla.
1: Right, exactly. And so
0: that's his biggest motivation. And spoilers, yeah. the heartbreak of Gim at the end of the story is he technically does end up saving Layla, which is was Carla's current vessel, mm. as Carla is now like a spirit in a, uh, essentially a cursed item <laughs> circling, uh,
3: <yeah.
0: laughs> um, going from body to body. That's how she's been able to live, like you know, sole survivor of a ancient world. Doesn't want another Atlantis to happen, essentially, mm-hmm. and you know, has been both siding every conflict <laughs> since mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. since that time. And even the when you were talking, even when talking about like Woodchuck and what what he ends up doing at the very end. Absolutely, lo- I love that motivation that he or- that Woodchuck the player already seated I'm pretty sure, like, I want to be, like, I want to be at that table
1: too. Oh, I know. You know? I want to know what that conversation was like.
0: Yeah, like, did you, did you, you, the player, sometimes, like, if I can't make a decision, I'll, like, just roll d D20 and just to figure out what my decision will be. Mm -hmm. I'm not like, is it, do I take it? What's my motivation? What do I do? Like, I want to be in that moment when the player goes, I'm going to steal the circlet. Right. Because, like, my life was taken away from me and this is my chance to get my life back or to get revenge on the people who took my life away. Like, that is just good. That's just juicy role-playing.
1: Yeah, that's what you want. That's the, that's the dream, right? This yeah. is the dream of the game master. <laughs> and I, I'm also really, really curious what the, like, I'm, this is one of those things where sometimes you have conversations with the GM and, like, ways to make things, like, you make a decision out of character. The frequent one being, like, uh, the most common one, like, oh, I can no longer play, you know, just kill off my character. Right? the character didn't do anything in the fiction to have to die but you know Cindy's schedule changed she can't play with us anymore her character's dead okay yeah, yeah. we're moving on and that's <laughs> but like, there's other there's other reasons to make those decisions and changes and you know I've quite famously had you know secret notes with between the GM and the player before the game even starts and they have their own motivations and stuff right. I'm curious what the discussions were like to get to the point where Woodchuck picks up the circlet because yeah. I have I have been at tables where like spontaneous big changes like that just they just feel right and the player just does them. Mm-hmm. And that can be really shocking. But I'm also curious again, noting on that the thief was kind of rough to play in early DD. I'm curious, like, it's hard to tell how much of Woodchuck's frustration is just good role playing. Or is it also a bit of bleed over with the player being like, this isn't really as fun as, as I thought <laughs> it would be? And it was this, like, a hey, I kind of want to play somebody else. Maybe is there a way we can kind of write Woodchuck out? Oh, wouldn't it be cool if. If he Woodchuck took the becomes like, the next vessel right I'm yeah. wondering if that was a decision because in heroic now remind me what, what were the what was the barbarian uh, Orson in heroic night and um, the oh girl God. that was with him I can't think of her name I can't remember uh wiki's got it Shearus. Orson and Shearus. like they show up at 1.2 and I'm trying to remember I didn't watch enough heroic night I'm trying to remember <laughs> if Woodchuck was already out of the picture by then like it wouldn't surprise me if like Woodchuck gets written out because that player character wanted to, that player wanted to play a different character. Yeah, yeah. Right, like that wouldn't surprise me. Wouldn't I mean,
0: I, me. it's also the same thing with Gim's decision to yeah, kind of like Gim, yeah, to essentially die for to save Layla, Carla's current vessel. Like, was that from reading it again as a record? God, I can't stop now. <laughs> <laughs> <Wow>. uh, <laughs> The way it's described, like the other Parn and the rest of the party were surprised. Well, Slain maybe not as surprised. Like, uh, was right. that non-surprise just something that maybe they talked about, or was that non-surprise um, something that was written later? But for you know the way Parn and Deedlit and Anto were just like, oh my god, he actually just did this. I'm like, what was that role like? What was how was that played out at the table?
2: Mm-hmm. Again, mm-hmm. taking
0: it on its own. Might not be the most groundbreaking thing in the world, right? Like again, like you said, like it's it's not breaking any new ground when it comes to like high fantasy. It's a, like it's a weekend read. It's not even that difficult. But taking it as the world building in and of itself is good and it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, it is so much richer if you were to hand this to a D and D player. Absolutely, that's what makes this book amazing: is to have that context. Maybe on its own, it's not that great.
1: I will say, though, in the angle of it being almost like comfort food, mm. I will use an analogy here if you will allow me when we call something no, no generic... analogy allowed, <laughs> oh ahead.
3: man, Kidding. Jeez.
1: <laughs> hands in my pockets as I kick the can down the road, <laughs> Paula, no, uh, so when we talk about something being generic, like the term we use for it is vanilla, mm. mm-hmm. right, like vanilla is the generic flavor, and uh. You know, like when's the last time you went to get ice cream and you you were like, I would like one scoop of vanilla ice cream, please, no toppings, no nothing, right? Like, like never. It's generic. You want something special, right? Not not vanilla, but like it's almost kind of funny because vanilla is really, really tasty. It's really good. It's really good. I and mean, when you get no- a really good
0: a- vanilla ice cream, like proper vanilla yeah. ice cream, it's
1: real good. Yeah, it's real, real good. And it's like vanilla. Nothing tastes like vanilla. Yeah. like vanilla is a really unique and specific flavor. It's not generic. It's just so good and we got so used to it that it became generic after the fact. Yeah. And I kind of feel like and it, like if you go and you have like just a scoop of vanilla ice cream, I think you might be amazed that you actually don't necessarily need all the mm-hmm. the, the toppings and the sprinkles and the 17 scoops yeah. and like all that all that is great. Nothing against that, but it's like Actually, straight up vanilla is pretty great too. When you yeah. have the right, the right kind, I feel like this is a scoop of really good vanilla ice cream. I agree because we talk about generic fantasy, but like, name a generic fantasy, right? Like,
0: <laughs> you know what? It's yes, like,
1: it's like oh, people are like okay, well, like Lord of the Rings, but like Lord of the Rings is like Ugh. Dark Ages, <laughs> Dark Ages, Beowulf fan fiction. Yes. It's not even really generic high fantasy stuff. You're like, okay, well. Maybe like Warcraft. Well, like Warcraft is all like it's got steampunk stuff and it's mm-hmm. got its own like weird unique. Like it's not generic. It's got all kind of, like blimps and stuff going on. It's all over the place. You might say, well, you know, like Warhammer, but like Warhammer has like it's more like a, like the Holy Roman Empire, and you've got Mesoamerican space frogs and stuff. Like you got all kinds of wild <laughs> stuff, and like so it's like Narnia like truly, is just
0: like a conglomeration like, of like. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, is doing its own thing, right? They get guns, guns from Santa to hunt a witch that gives out treats. Like, name a lot of generic fantasy. It's hard to do. And then on top of that, it's hard to name good generic fantasy. There's, and the, especially in the modern era where, particularly in the anime side of things, you've got, everything's an isekai, right? Everything's, I'm trapped in a <laughs> video game. I'm trapped in another world. I've got a cell phone. But like, this is just a group of people running around fighting dragons and stuff. And it's, it's really, really good. It's a yeah, really good scoop of cereal really cereal ice cream. It's a like, very good scoop
0: of vanilla <laughs> ice cream. I will, yes, I, I'm with you. I should give it more credit than what it's due.
1: And I'm just, I'm not, no, that wasn't really against you so much as like from my perspective. Like that's, wow. There's a reason why all these tropes are so common. Mm-hmm. Because like when you do it right, it's really good. It's really satisfying. Like it feels really, really good. Yes. You I'm know Running it, around.
0: This, I will say, yeah, I definitely will say this was transformative and maybe not on a personal level, but it was transformative in like the macro level of what it became. Mm. And at the end Mm -hmm. of the day, you just want a satisfying story. And this was a really satisfying story. It pays off. Yeah. I would certainly recommend this book if you've got a nice weekend to just chill.
1: Yeah, for sure. You'll
0: get so much deeper understanding of it when you have the tabletop experience
2: mm-hmm. and you
0: know that context and even if you do know the context of watching the anime and getting into the book it's a much deeper understanding but if you just like I'm going on a weekend in my backyard and I just want to turn off my brain for a good fantasy series and I want it to mm-hmm. be quick and like satisfying this first mm-hmm. book's not bad and there's enough threads in here that I'm like please Please, seven Cs. Give me all seven. Yeah.
1: It's in your name. <laughs> right, right. Give me seven. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that would be great. I, I want them to do all of them. But it, I think it's so solid, and I think what we consider to be generic is really hard to find, actually, especially mm. good, mm-hmm. especially good generic, and especially that reads this briskly. Like, I think you could make an argument maybe for, like, Wheel of Time being kind of generic high fantasy stuff, but... You know, Robert Jordan is not known for writing briskly, right? I mean, that, that that's that's not exactly something he was known for. This reads like a breeze to me, as opposed to Wheel of Time, which I've bounced off of multiple times at this point. <laughs> um, <laughs> no offense to the world being created, but man, it's it's a little dense. Yeah. Or even, like you said, Lord of the Rings. Like you've you've bounced off Two Towers multiple oh times. Oh my god! Uh, I try. This just you. You can finish this. You can finish this. Yeah, and you can take away from it some really interesting ideas. I mean, it's great, and it's really fun to read if you've already seen the anime in some form. But it's also great if you love fantasy role-playing stuff, and it's a great way to see multiple character motivations being entwined, right? The bringing the party together type thing. How do you handle older characters that would be adventuring, and mechanically they're still not as powerful, like how do you explain that, right? That kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and and way, ways to bring character background, you know, okay, Slane doesn't feel like he's got that much skin in the game, but then the Academy's been destroyed. Oh, mm. yes. You know, that's like, so he's got to find who destroyed the Academy. Where are all the wizards? And that also reemphasizes how powerful Carla is because the, the Academy's gone. And I'm sure all, a lot of those guys and gals are dead. And it's like, so... You know, slain may be one of the few wizards left that can do anything to stop, you know, all that kind of stuff. Parn and his dad and, and Deedlit and her people. You know, there, there's just enough hooks there to really keep them all invested in what's going on. And at different levels of engagement, you can see, like, some characters really care about what's going on in the wider world. Some characters are really focused and just concerned with one individual. Mm-hmm. Was the reveal that Gim was trying to rescue the priestess daughter, was that an in-the-moment reveal for the whole table? Or was it just for the player characters, right? That kind mm-hmm. of dramatic irony between what the players know and what the characters know. There's different. I've 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 ex- I've had both of those happen before, and they can both pay off really well. I actually think there's there's quite a bit of joy to be had with having all the players be in on a secret, <laughs> but not all the not all the characters, right? Like all the players know that that Gim is trying to get the priestess' daughter back. None of the, the characters know it, right? And then when it happens in text, then everybody's <laughs> been anticipating. It's like <gasps> it you happened. know that kind of stuff. Yeah, for you know? sure. That's a moment that you can game out. And it may not necessarily hit quite as hard when it's just thought of as just prose when you think this is an improvisational, at least semi-improvisational experience that someone played out. Oh, that must have just felt Terrific. Yeah. Execute. It must have just been amazing in play.
0: Gosh. Well, I want to look at some of the questions that we did post on yeah. our Twitter feeds. And you had just some uh, posted to folks who may or may not have joined us. You had, like, how well does this book stand up to compare to other adaptations? When we were comparing it to the OVAs, it's not a one to one, but no. But it's truly in that transmedia or mixed media experience. You don't need a one to one, one to one, mm-hmm. beat for beat kind of moment the overarching themes should be the same or should yeah, be similar pretty and they, yeah here. pretty much yeah
1: yeah i will say by comparison there's a couple things that i noticed in my read a lot of little things here and there one as we already discussed that big kind of opening adventure in the ova which doesn't really Happen in the text, uh, which <laughs> I think was a good, certainly a good addition. I don't know if it would have worked as well in text form. It can be hard to write a dungeon crawl. Yeah, that's, a, that's a bit of a challenge. But I think the OVA was smart to add that kind of scene in there. One thing that I know, and I'm, I'm trying to remember, it's one of those things like I've watched it a thousand, thousand times and then I haven't watched it in like 10 years. <laughs> so I'm trying to remember when they encounter Carla on the road and she starts summoning all those spells. I don't really rec- like her like summoning like all those spells around her. Like, I don't really remember that happening in the OVA. I don't think that scene took place.
0: No. It was, like, just... I very clearly remember just, like, a bunch of thunder and lightning happening. Like, super dramatic.
1: Yeah. Like, she's very overtly powerful in the text. Mm-hmm. Slain quite literally says... She is summoning a bunch of high-level spells. Like, like <laughs> it's get It's one of the most D and D like, bro. She is summoning an eight d six fireball and then a ninety six lightning bolt, and that like he, he's like, <laughs> bro, the D and D spellness happening right here. We're all it's about to be a TPK, right? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. It's one of the most D and D moments, and then it gets interrupted and she bails. But I kind of like that scene. Same. It, in the OVA, she's definitely shadowy and it's implied that she's powerful. I don't know if she really ever shows that kind of power, though. I don't think so. So she just seems kind of more like a manipulator, which is fine. But I do like the idea that she's like, I'm here for the balance. But if you want to get toasted, bro, like, I can, <laughs> like we can throw down and I'll win. <laughs>
0: and she put, and she's so clearly that in the pros.
1: Yeah, right. Like,
0: she, like, the only, like, I love how cocky she is in that dinner scene where like, listen, I'm only doing this because my buddy's here and I'm out of respect for her. Right. And I'm not going to throw hands. But if you want to throw, hands i'll throw hands that have fire on right
1: right and like she has that ominous vibe and like those scenes in the ova are really really good like with her like standing behind wart and everything but i definitely got the sense that we don't quite get a sense of how strong she is in the ova it's kind of it's all implied Mm -hmm. i do like in the text that she's just like check out my big spells but I, I think the change that shocked me the most is the way that Beld dies. When Beld and Fawn mm, fight in the mm-hmm. book, Beld and Fawn go at each other and Fawn gets a pretty good hit, but you know, Beld kills him. And then he goes over to fight and Cashew steps up to the plate and it's like, you know, I gotta fight now because you know it's, you killed my it's friend all to us. Yeah, and then like as they're going in, like an arrow from nowhere, obviously. You know, Carla hits Beld and gives Cashew a chance to decapitate him. So it makes more sense for it to happen that way, for the war to continue and for Beld's warriors to hate cashew now too but like, the story structure wise that makes more sense but in the OVA when he strikes down Fawn he's like Bleh-h-h-h-h-h-h. and then like, a lightning bolt lance comes out of nowhere and just like, impales him through the chest <laughs> and it's very clear that Carla was like boom and just like hit him from afar yeah. the image of him just like standing there his body is propped up by the lance like kind of like the spear or whatever like goes through his chest and hits the ground and is keeping him standing there that's such a shocking image it's like one of the goriest moments in the whole work. That image is so striking that the fight with Cashew makes more sense. Yeah. It's nowhere near as dramatic as the OVA. Like that moment in the OVA is like...
0: (gasps) Yeah, the prose is definitely more grounded in that sense. But if you're bringing out like an OVA and usually, again, because it is a short... What we know as anime fans, like OVAs tend to be a little higher in quality because they treat it as like a miniseries. So they have mm-hmm. a lot more time and investment in the quality of that work. Like the story would Cashew now being the new king <laughs> target or whatever, setting up the story arc for the next book or the next game story arc. Whereas if you're treating it as an OVA, you just want that like very clear, like, He's dead. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: in like the most, I guess, this is the North Star dramatic way. Right. <laughs> Dying, standing up.
1: Yeah, it's such a dramatic image, I guess. Like
0: traumatic or dramatic.
1: Well, <laughs> it's a very dramatic moment and image. Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. The next question that you had here is like, do tabletop RPG conventions help or hinder experience? I think it just, it it helps. It provides such a deeper meaning to what you're reading. Mm. And again, when you mentioned that when they confront Carla on the road in the prose, I immediately, my brain went into, if this is a full fun encounter, a battle map is out.
1: Yep, yep. As soon as she starts (laughs) slinging those,
0: yeah, those slain saying that she's, Carla's slinging these, like I felt the player panic. I'm all like, what the Mm -hmm. fuck? Legendary actions, bullshit. (laughs) No, no. Oh.
1: <laughs> Yeah and like I don't I wouldn't call them essential. They're not essential to enjoying the work. You can just read it and enjoy it uh, again using my kind of vanilla analogy, I think. but they really, really help. even down to stuff like, the prose talks about it, say, like Deedlet being able to cast spells. For her, it's like these elementals, mm-hmm. right? Like, I, I do like that. Oh, we don't I love really that. like the description yeah. that she's like kind of, kind of like working with elementals, but she's also like, she can wear armor and has a sword and like fights. So, like, what keeps Slain from being able to do that? Like, it's not really clear why he is just kind of a blaster mm-hmm. and like he just doesn't wear armor and use weapons like Deedlet does. But if you understand that they're playing an era of D&D where wizards don't have those proficiencies and they can't get them. And elf was quite literally a class. Mm-hmm. Dwarf was a class. That was what we call race as class. Literally every day an elf character would wake up and you had to just like they were like fighter wizard mix <laughs> and they would decide every day am I going to be a wizard today or a fighter today? The modern iterations you can connect any of these backgrounds and any of these classes with any of these ancestries and they're like dials you can turn. Yes. Older editions were much more stringent. Paladins have to be human. They have to be lawful good. They have to have a you know minimum scores. You had to roll minimum scores to get them and stuff. And like, nope, elf was like a package, dwarf was a package, right? Like <laughs> <laughs> uh, all that stuff. Like if you understand that, you're like, okay, I see what's going on here. But it might be like, uh, why? Wh- what exactly is going on? You know. I mean, I like the. maybe
0: mo- I mean, they did kind of do the shout out for it in that final battle, like per- in the, in the book of even Cashew shouting out hey wizards don't get too far away from the actual armies right. protecting you you're gonna get
2: beat mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. even
0: that final battle I mean I'm sure you as a war game player like can see oh, yeah. like all like the map is out or even just telling your mm-hmm. players like mm-hmm. no you, you can't have your magic users too far away or else they won't be as effective if they're X amount of squares away from each other
1: yeah I'm in full Warhammer mode where it's like alright you can't just have wizards on their own you attach independent characters characters to regiments so they don't get picked off by random fire, all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, totally saw that. Last question for the one that you provide for our audience. We love you. Is this something that compels you to read more or is it just short fun romp? And for me it's both. Mm-hmm. I want more. And I'm not okay. But if they don't publish anything else, <laughs> fine. <laughs> I can enjoy this on a weekend, but give me all of them.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, I think it could be both. I think it can be a snack and a meal. Yes. I would not hesitate to read more. Yes. But if this is all I ever read, it which just be like, wow, what a great little D&D story. This is so much fun.
0: Yep. <laughs> Let's look at some of our Twitter responses. This ask us some questions from Otaku Craig. Uh, how do the novels compare to the OVAs? Does it hold up to the day standard of novels? I think, like I said, for me, in terms of readers, advisory i put this with other light novels ya it is very much a weekend read the prose is very direct very simple very much a record so the elements of the storytelling is just direct and satisfying
1: yeah absolutely And i would imagine anybody who's even considering picking up and reading this is familiar with Lotos through the anime mm-hmm. i would be shocked if that was not the case so I'm assuming you have seen the anime. If you have seen the anime, I think this is worth the read because it's a different way to experience a story you already love and see a few different things. But I don't know if I would say, I mean, by comparison, the OVA's production is so lavish and those character designs are so distinct and so wonderful. The art in the light novel is nice, but it just doesn't compare to the, you know, that's the full production. Yeah. You know, and it's such a, it's it, it is on the whole, a very, very faithful adaptation of the light novel.
0: It's your is your vanilla ice cream with the fixins, is it OVAs?
1: Exactly. And it's a fog machine. So <laughs> <A> fog machine. <laughs> like, whoa. Uh, it's great. It's like a great um, 90s commercial. <laughs> in terms of standing up to today's novels, you know, I, I have been have been reading a bunch of light novels because of working with ANN. I don't read them on my own. Like, I read them for A&N. Mm. It's stuff that is to be reviewed. Like, I don't necessarily get to pick the things that <laughs> would best fit me. Sometimes it's just, well, this comes across your desk and your editor says you need to review it. Uh, Lindsay's great, but, you know, sometimes you got to take one for the team. And so, <laughs> by comparison, I really, really, really like it. Mm. Reading it now, like, comparing it to a lot of the things I've read from the industry that it spawned, I think it is head and shoulders above most of them that I've read, to be perfectly honest. Yes,
0: yeah, very much so. I'm not particularly a light novel reader. I read a little bit of Sword Art Online and then a little bit of Is It Wrong to Pick Up Girls in the Dungeon? Very, like, those are the two light novels when people say, do you read light novels? It's almost always those two Mm. as, like, your starter. When light novels really became a mainstream thing. But, and when I read those two, I was like, "Mm." it's gonna be a little better <laughs> yeah there's way too much talk about female body parts that is so disrespectful yeah. that i'm totally not all about
1: i mean it's still wish fulfillment-y like obviously lotus is the wish fulfillment of oh this game i played with my friends yes what if they made a movie out of it what if they made a story out of it so i i don't want to say it's like oh it's just wish fulfillment because this was wish fulfillment too much in a way. but that the wish fulfillment of a lot of these light novels is just I will simply say it does not appeal to me. It's like, well, oh, what if I had a cell phone that made every girl in the kingdom love me? Like, it's just like, this none of this, it just doesn't <laughs> engage me. Like, I'm already, like, I'm already checked out. Like, yeah. I'm I look at the, I get one look at the cover and I'm like, ugh. Like. I mean, like I
0: haven't read them yet, but I did buy them. The Wish Fulfillment of A uh, Sentence of a Bookworm. I do need to read it. I've got mixed reviews, but that's that light novel. And I also have Sex Isle, my sexist party member. Oh, you were
1: telling me about that the one. The first one's yeah, really good. It was really
0: fun. Talked about a lot of female friendship, and that was really great. And again, interesting enough, I also... Before I knew the anime manga boom in the 90s was a thing. And then just like the anime manga boom that we have now led into... The light novel boom... That we have now. The 90s were getting there, but it weaned down by the time it got to the light novel. So that's why we did have Lotos for a while. We did have Slayers, the light novels out for a while right. before they all went bankrupt. The mid-aughts. But Tokyo pop released the 12 Kingdoms right. light novel series. And it's very much based on like Chinese mythology. And it is an Izakai in that like this girl from Japan gets transported in this Chinese mythology-inspired world. And the prose is what It's like really good and Lush, yeah. and that's another Leather night novel. Like I would buy for you, except it's out of print. It's rare enough that each volume is like a hundred dollars each.
1: Oh lord, yeah, do not, do not do that. <laughs> <laughs> do not. I will be upset with you. <laughs> but um. I
0: have, I, there's only four of them out. I only have three. And I'm like, oh, why don't have the fourth one. And I look for the third volume in hardcover, and I'm all like, why are you $200? God, oh, damn. I... But I remember picking up The Twelve Kingdoms, and it just blew me away. Because I had never read anything like this before. And I think if I had picked up Lodos around the same time, I would have felt the same way. Mm. Because it had such a sprawling mythos behind it. And I think if yeah. I read Lotos first as like pros. If I say got one of the original Central Park Media light novels, which I I will mm-hmm. test out when I actually find them all. I think if I got into the pros first, I would have appreciated the OVAs as, as, when I watch them instead of the other way around. Mm-hmm. In which case, I got around to Lotos because of you know Critical Role.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Our friend Bunny Cartoon Don, who hosts the Anime Nostalgia Podcast, asked us a question. Mm-hmm. We love you, Don. Thanks for your question. <laughs> do you think this book will appeal to not anime fans who enjoy tabletop RPGs and critical role type things? Or is it too anime even in book form? And I replied to her directly going, can anything be too anime? I don't think so.
1: <laughs> I don't think no. so.
0: Nothing's too anime. <laughs> At least for me. But as we were saying, <laughs> yes. I think if you do understand tabletop RPGs, you certainly will appreciate this book. Even if you haven't read Lotos before. I think you'd really appreciate the book.
1: Yeah, I feel like, and I don't want to be, I mean, we were just complaining about some of the tropes we don't like, but there's a wider perception that all anime is like that, and that's clearly overgeneralizing. The sort of like icky themes that we don't like necessarily. Oh, it's always about this, that, or the other. Some people are like, no anime, it's weird stuff, it's all this, that, or the other. (laughs) I mean, some of that (laughs) stuff is present. In a sense, they're not wrong. But it's not all just that. And I think a lot of the tropey things that people at least say they don't like about anime and are hesitant about, none of that's really here. Yeah. The closest it gets, is I will say, of all the characters to get a physical description, Deedlet gets the most... Like, you understand who <laughs> d is top to bottom in prose. Oh, that's about the extent yeah. of it. No one else really quite gets that. Even then, it's not like... Bah, 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 bah. Like, it's just she gets a lot of description. And, you know, she and Parn feature quite heavily in all the media and stuff like that. And with good reason, because d great. I mean, of course, I'm a, I'm a Puritist man myself, but we won't go into that. But I think a <laughs> lot of the things that people would complain about if they're not anime fans already, a lot of things that what, would make them hesitant aren't really here. And then on top of that, if they're already fans of tabletop RPGs, I think just the basic idea of hey, somebody's D D game, but they made a story out of it, like books and shows, they'd be like, <gasps> like just the the, 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 the glimmer is there. It's the dream, right? These people are living the dream, and I want to live that dream too, vicariously. And they'll, I think, they would enjoy yeah. it at least in that sense. <laughs>
0: yeah, totally. Again, she mentioned uh, CR type things as in current role, like. Mm -hmm. it's really it's really hard not to make a comparison yeah for sure like you have to make the comparison especially even that like i again i got into critical role that's the reason my current re-exposure to tabletop rpgs i mentioned in our session zero that i do have a very long story maybe a long story possibly when we get around to it about my first foray into riffs in high school and it wasn't about Mm. like the gameplay it was about the story and for me that's I watched all of Campaign 1. It's my comfort watch. Mm. I have certain episodes of Critical Role that I can just like fall asleep to because I know exactly what yeah. goes on because I've watched it multiple times. <laughs> and the fact that they, I mean, I was one of the supporters for their Kickstarter for the animated series. And even like them getting the animated opening for their show or getting the D&D Beyond commercial animated for their show, all those things are like, oh my God, I can't believe this is actually happening. Right. And then I made you watch the first three episodes of Legend of Ox Machina. Yeah. Yeah, when you're thinking about like OVA comparisons, you have that's it's your first foray into Crit Role, right?
1: Yeah, I've tried to listen to some of it before, mm. and I, I kind of bounced <laughs> off of it a little, and I just I need to get back to it and try it again. But even the only other there's a few actual plays I really dig. Mm. I liked the first arc of um, the Adventure Zone, the Balance arc for that. That was that was pretty fun. But some of the other stuff kind of wore on me, and I, I fell off that too. Mm-hmm. But in any case, I'm I'm pretty new to Critical Role other than just knowing it's a D&D thing yeah. and that it's super popular and a lot of people love it. With Vox Machina, I, I definitely enjoyed it but there was also some part, like I guess the thing that's interesting is that, you know, if Lotos is the dream experience at the table, right, this like very serious, very dramatic role play and everybody's invested in telling their stories and it's all like in-universe and then Slayers is a little more tongue-in-cheek. Vox Machina is on the other end where it's super clear that the merging of the table talk and the character talk in one, right, like it's all yeah. the crass jokes and it's all the like, yeah, why do we always get in fights and killing people and singing ridiculous songs (laughs) and the bard betting all the women and all that kind of stuff. Like all that stuff is completely par for the course for D and D. I've been at a million tables like that. I guess just what's interesting though, is that in my experience, usually there's this above table layer where the players and the GM are cutting up and laughing and having all kinds of goofballery time. But then there's like out of character and in character and like in the fiction, we're more serious Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to have those two, so that you don't have nonstop shenanigans, but you also don't have like nonstop like serious melodramatic roleplay for mm-hmm. hours. You kind of need both. But in fiction, I found myself getting kicked out of it constantly because of all the jokes and everything. Interesting. It wasn't the jokes themselves. All this kind of stuff is completely par for the course for out of character D and D type talk. It, by by some estimations, it's light. Compared to some of the more ridiculous things that people have said at tables I've sat at over the years, but I was most engaged with who's the glasses guy with the guns Percy Percy, I was like most engaged with him and stuff with his family, yes. and all that stuff was in the fiction, yeah, in the secondary world, right It's the same problem I have with the Isekai stuff so much is like when you remind me that the world isn't real, I get kicked out of it, and I have to like recalibrate uh-huh. so I found myself having to constantly recalibrate because I kept hearing like these are d and d players playing d and d and I'm too much behind the curtain. When the crass humor and stuff would happen, it I felt like it was fine. It just would knock me back out and I had to mentally recalibrate. But like the stuff with Percy and like his parents and the drama at the table and him like losing it. All that stuff was great. And I'm like, that's what I want. Oh man.
3: You know, I want
1: Lodos. I want to watch Lodos stuff. I want to see the drama and I want to see the storytelling and all that. And I think that's engaging and cool. And the jokey comedy stuff, because I'm not a fan, I guess, every time those jokes would happen, I was like, well, a you lot know, I was getting pushed out. Whereas I think even if I watched the exact same things happen during one of their shows, it wouldn't bother me as much.
0: I wonder, <laughs> there's part of me that's like, I want you to watch all of it. Because they are releasing it in like three episode batches.
1: I see. This next okay. three
0: episodes is very Percy heavy story. Like it takes a turn and I kind of love
1: it. Then I I good. am excited because that's the stuff I like. Yeah. Like when the um the Druid was like, she was like having a lot of like.
2: Oh, Keelin, She was like
1: having a lot of confidence issues and they were comforting her and stuff. Yeah, like, that's good. Bring me into the secondary world. Like, like, take me there. Take me to a place. I want to be there. Like, I, I know what it's like to be a regular guy. Like, I want to be in the fiction. So, like, I like that stuff. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I'm i like, please watch the next three and tell me what you think. I yeah. want to know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will. I promise. Oh,
0: God. The first thing means a lot to me. Because, again, I was in a dark place at that time. And I really needed it. And which is why I kind oh, of... Oh, no doubt. What I, no what doubt. I, which I really love about, like, Percy... Because, like, him going, like, cray, the black smoke, and his mask coming in, like, he got the moniker Mm -hmm. of No Mercy Percy. Oh, okay. And so, like, I screamed that at my, this like, these next set of episodes, like, No Mercy Percy! Get him! (laughs) Kill them all! I am so glad this book is in the world. And I really my God, I really want them to release all the rest of it. My funny story is that in preparing for this, I had bought this book a while ago. I bought my copy a long while ago. And as we were reading and preparing for this recording, I had like, I had tabs on it. That's what the pictures that you see on our Twitter page, my notes and stuff like that. And then I was going to take it to my office at work. And in between putting that book in my bag, and then going to my office, it disappears. Just gone. Not in my car, not in my apartment, not falling underneath my couch, not in the garage, not in my office. It just disappeared. If you are listening to this and you live in Southern California and you see a record of Lotus War, the Grey Witch 25th anniversary, filled with cat (laughs) sticker tabs, give it back. (laughs) I will <laughs> raffle off the one, that the, the, the separate copy that we have. I will happily raffle that and give that to a listener. If you find the one that has tabs on it, because <laughs> I have no idea where it went. And I am so annoyed. I'm like, what pandemic brain am I in that I lose a whole ass book? <laughs>
1: I suspect the work of the witch Carla and She has to have had a hand. Uh,
0: Carla! Carla?
1: Shaking your fist at the time. Oh, God. That is a tragedy. It is a tragedy. And uh, well, we may have to go on a quest. Yes. So I do want to kind of transition to a face that I literally just came to my mind as we were talking. Yeah. So the sort of adventure tomes takeaways, if you will. If there are elements of Lotus that you like... Let's kind of have GM slash player talk here as we are both GMs and players in games. What elements, if you're trying to like what are some tips, I guess, and what are some thoughts about trying to replicate some of these elements in your own games when you're playing? Like, do we have any thoughts on like what you would do to try to hit some of these same emotional beats or structure things a certain way to make this happen?
0: For me, what inspired me when you brought up that like you're dealing with the consequences of another adventuring, like high level adventuring
1: group? Mm-hmm.
0: I love a world that keeps going that Mm -hmm. has its own motivations it's a world that continues to be alive and change and there are going to be npcs that create decisions Mm -hmm. regardless of what your players want to do and i kind of love that
1: i think the the legacy element is really cool Mm One of the tricks that I have used and has been used with me is making the legacy characters prior player characters that they have played. For example, oh. one of the few times that I've gotten to play multiple times under the same GM, I'm, I have the forever GM syndrome. Uh, I played a paladin and I really liked that paladin and he had a, a cool sword that was made of meteoric iron from a fallen star. I was really, really like that paladin. His name was Roland, there was nothing really, he was the most generic paladin character ever, but he had a cool sword uh, and did some legendary stuff. But the cool thing was that he became like sort of a patron saint, if you will. And I had future paladins who would serve under the order that he founded. Or we would go to towns. And one of the details the GM would just throw out was, there's a statue of Roland there. My, my old character, like there in oh, stone. That's lovely. And that's the kind of stuff that's like, it really only mattered to me. But he did that with all of us. Old characters and stuff. He'd throw in little references and things like that. Yes. That's like a really cool way... I was more invested in the world with those future characters than I was with Roland. Like with Roland I was just it was just cool to play. I was like, "Oh, I'm just glad to be a player at the table." But like I was super invested because my prior character mattered. Or another example I would give is that um I ran uh, a cu- quite a few superhero campaigns in my day, more than a few under the Mutants and Masterminds Second Edition rules. Uh, and we ran a game in college that wasn't super long lived. It kind of sputtered out and died after maybe a couple months of play. And we took some time away from the system, and we came back, you know, maybe a few months later, like kind of a, like a year all round, right? Like we played for a few months, took a few months break and we started it up again and, and got playing. And I ran with some legacy character ideas for some of them and it became one of the most engaging stories I've really ever seen at the table. One of my players, and this was all entirely his own motivation, but he, like we talked it out and really, really ran with it and made it a big deal. But like it was his idea. He had played a character the first time around. His name was, it was some, some variant of Archangel or something. He was like an <laughs> angel type yeah, character. Yeah, yeah. Angel, some angel superhero and he had kind of like a Hawkman style mask yeah. where he like he put on the mask and he gave him his powers and the whole shtick was that it was like the mask itself was passed down to future bearers Mm -hmm. you know there was only ever one and they got the mask and they got the powers. nothing too shocking there but the second time around he played the person who had been the bearer before his first character so he was like an older man oh interesting and he thought he was done he's like I'm done I passed on the power to the next generation I don't have to do this anymore and the mask comes back to him and the power comes back to him and he's like oh my god what happened something's wrong not only is the other bearer gone but like he didn't pass on the power something is the power should not have returned to me. and that hook was so compelling and it made for really incredible role play that campaign like that's one of my favorite campaigns i've (laughs) ever run and all the characters had elements like that but that's a way that as a player he decided to bring legacy in and of course it was a conversation with me but that's a really good way like legacy is such a powerful idea when you bring it into fictional spaces whether it's role-playing games it, it jojo's bizarre adventure right what's one of the most amazing hooks about jojo's their descendants right it's like every generation is connected and it's like you can kind of do a new thing but there's always that link to the path like that's really really powerful stuff Mm -hmm. so that's one thing i guess i would also from my own experience trying to replicate lotus and failing many, many 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 times is when you want stories like what gim or woodchuck have, right? Or even what Parn and Deedlet have, right? These sort of like compelling arcs. I would caution GMs against trying to make that occur through their own sort of, don't just expect your players to come to that. Mm -hmm. Don't just think, okay, I'm going to offer Woodchuck's player this compelling twist and I'll make it so compelling they just have to take it. Or it would be really dramatic if Gim died in this fight, mm-hmm. you know, or like I'm going to plant the seeds for there to be a romance between these characters <laughs> or with this NPC. There's just no guarantee that players are going to necessarily gravitate to it. If they're not in right. on it, you know, of course their agency, like they may just in the moment be like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Why would I do that. If you plan for them to take a right at the fork in the road, forget taking a left. They may just go back down the road. They may just run off into the woods. You never know what players mm-hmm. are going to do. So be careful setting up that stuff and because it can be really frustrating. You set those things up and they fail mm-hmm. and they just fall flat. When you throw it out there and they catch it, it's like, yes. But it is so frustrating and, and demoralizing to set up these cool ideas. But if you're the only one that knows about them and the players don't know that you have a like, they're just gonna, they're like, I don't know what they not gonna take that quest. I don't want that. Like, <laughs> you know? So don't be afraid to loop them in. And even if you're just talking about it via text, like, hey, let's not. Let's not talk about this in the group text. Like, I just want to talk about this with me and you. Can we work out a cool idea? You know, And it doesn't have to be set in stone. Like, you don't want to like force it on them, but like, hey, I had this cool idea. Do you think maybe we could work with this? Or even encourage your players in session zero type stuff. Like, hey, you know, if you have some cool character arcs that you think it'd be fun, like we can talk about that. We can build that out. And I would say work that muscle like any other muscle, right? Maybe don't, don't hinge your whole campaign on character A becoming the legendary hero start small. Maybe the person that they helped in the opening village in the first session helps them in the third session and becomes a friend of the party. You know, you know start small and, and kind of build up and see how it goes because, you know, there's player agency there, and character writing like it can be hard to predict where they're going to go but if you kind of loop them in on it even if it's just one other person at the table like having kind of a co-conspirator mm-hmm. can help you deliver on these really fun things and then like you both know about it and you're like yeah 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 and then like like this cool big arc thing and the other players are gonna be like whoa or they're going to be really invested and notice like wow this was like really engaging all of a sudden yeah. you can tell it was like it was went more well thought out When I mean, you
0: want them to see like the consequences of their actions right you want them to see mm-hmm. the like mm-hmm. you want to give your players a specific... Not just like the hook, you want them to be able to see how their actions really affected the world. Mm-hmm. And you want to be able to drop that mm-hmm. constantly. I mean, in this case, like, Gim's sacrifice, you get Layla.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And Layla's gotta play, right. like, if they're not setting it up for... You know, but she's going to play a part on the next... In the next hour, wherever that may be. Even mm-hmm. if it's a romance with Slain.
1: I would also encourage players to not be afraid... To do a Gim or a woodchuck, totally. Like, bring up to your bring up to your GM like, hey we think in terms of campaign play, right, going the full distance and telling these long lovings, but don't be afraid to like tell a shorter story. Maybe the whole party is going to go the distance but you're like, hey, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to tap out with this character around level eight or something or like in the next arc or two. Wouldn't it be cool if we ended like this and I'll just play somebody else but like when you can plan it and really make it emotionally resonant, losing a character Mm -hmm. can like, that can become a huge motivator for the party and like a huge element and you see that in a lot of other games too but I've, I've had that happen. I was the, beloved character that died (laughs) and like my new character never really measured up to the old character yeah But the rest of the party, they were like on a vengeance quest to avenge my former character. And they created a lot of really good drama at the table, you know. So don't be afraid to offer up those ideas sometimes. It can be fun to do that because, you know, what happens in stories that we love? Sometimes a beloved character dies and it's a motivator for somebody else. Don't be afraid to put yourself out there and try that.
0: Yeah, totally. Like definitely don't be afraid to follow where you find your character's motivations lead you Mm.
1: to i think Mm.
0: that's another thing i love the aspect of players like you know this is what paula in real life would do like this is not what quinn would do because that's totally different and would quinn run in there like no she'd go home to her mom quinn being one of the npcs i brought up in our game (laughs) i
1: know who you're talking about the people at home (laughs) (laughs) home. might not know
0: (laughs) the home game that we have which i will refer to because now this is the very first you know, I'm DMing something. I'm homebrewing everything.
1: She's doing great, by the oh, way. She's doing a terrific so job. so nice
0: to me. Uh, <laughs> it's like we're friends. I'm just
1: calling them like I see them. You're, an, you're yeah. <laughs> no, you're a natural. <laughs> you're a natural.
0: Again, like I engage with things to be transformative for myself and mm. hopefully transform and give my friends a transformative experience. And I love being able to see how those gears kind of turn. I love the way you could see the mechanics play into the story beats. Mm-hmm. The story beats didn't come up on its own. The story beats came out because of the mechanics and the chances of the game. So something even in the prose seems abrupt. Those moments, I'm like, oh, there was a dice roll there somewhere. Right, right. Which I love and. And again, for like even baby DMs and baby players like myself, lean into that. Take that sharp right turn mm-hmm. <laughs> wherever it takes you. Mm-hmm. Because those chance decisions that you make at the table, it helps you write backwards to get the fuller picture of what your character is like. Mm-hmm. I kind of love that. Absolutely. And again, like maybe that chance encounter what happens to Gim and what happens to Woodchuck. At the very end, you can go back and see how they adapted it in written form. Like, oh, there's Woodchuck's motivation. Right. And it just ripple effect backwards. Words. Mm-hmm. And I love
1: that. I would also say, I mean, again, I'm going to assume that the majority of people listening play and D. Because that's what most people play. In terms of the opening, one of the reasons that you all meet at a tavern works is because you basically need no background. Mm-hmm. Like you just say, "Hey, we we'll all meet in a tavern," and that is just an accepted norm trope. Like that's just where we're going to meet to get out an adventure. If you want something a little more complex, like what we have here with, okay, you know, Parn and Ato are childhood friends, and then Slain and Gim know each other, and they're and okay, and then they run into delet and save her from these goons, and then Woodchuck is that, like, it's a much more complex party forming scenario. which i like
0: it feels more natural as well
1: it does feel more natural what i will say is i would caution game masters who like in any game where you have like you know like the pretty standard role-playing trope is you have a group of various people with various skills coming together for common cause right and like how do they get together the reason the tavern thing works so well is because you don't need a reason yeah like, oh, you're just all there together it can be really hard to naturally fall into mm-hmm. that like if you're trying to run a game where it's like all right each person only knows about themselves and we are going to play like you walk into town you see these things where do you go and like you try to like build it naturally i would say in the majority of cases unless you're a very very skilled dm and really really knows your players well and there's a high level of buy in like if you just let people quote unquote act how they would naturally like all they really have about their world is is like their own instincts they are not going to do what you're <laughs> going to do and they're basically just going to be like house cats. Like they're going to be awkward and like not know what to do and then probably scamper away as soon as anything happens. Totally. So what I would recommend personally, my like GM level vision, in the pros it takes a long time to do. But I would say that is something that is like almost a session zero or the maybe the first hour of the first session of like workshopping it together as a group. And Fate, if you're familiar with the Fate games, they do something like this. It's much more systematized. But I used to do this all the time when we used to play Star Wars. Because I ran into the same problem when I would run the old Western game Star Wars stuff as a kid. You know, the movies, Luke meets Obi and he gets his droids and they need transport. And oh, there's Han and they all travel together. You know, but that's all written. Like it looks natural, but it's it, like, all pre-written. And I used to struggle with like, how do I get these people together? So the thing that I used to do is when we sat down to play, my go-to move was okay, you sit down, tell me how your character knows and, you know, trust, either as a friend, family, you know, business partner or whatever. How do you know the person sitting to your left? And so like they had to come up with some connection with the person sitting to their left who had to also come up with a connection to the other person, you know. And so you'd have this kind of ring of connections where everybody knew basically at least two people and had we'd kind of workshop some kind of backstory together mm-hmm. why they would trust each other, but didn't necessarily know everybody at the table. And I see a similar kind of thing here. It's like, okay, slain and uh, Gim are kind of a pair. And then Parn and Ato are kind of a pair. And then Deedlet and Woodchuck aren't really a pair, but they do kind of meet them at the same location, right? You kind of have these like little, little mini connections that bring the party together. And I think that's a better approach. And you almost kind of workshop the story. Like you, you say, okay, you're all going to be on this quest, but let's roll the tape back a few steps and let's workshop out how you all meet each other. And, like, how do you know each other? And, like, why might you work together with so-and-so? And you kind of lead them to the meeting point collaboratively. And that is really, really powerful. And you're kind of, you know, you're kind of moving at double speed, right? Like, you're just kind of riffing.
0: Yeah. You're already setting in layer foundations. And that's a great session zero moment.
1: Yeah, it, it's gonna move quicker than a standard game if you were to, like play it out. Yeah, right with the way the most most games work, but it can create character backstory right away, and it can create those connections to get the game going, and then your players feel like they're in on it as opposed to like trying to force the action figures together, like now, <laughs> <laughs> like trying to make a party like against their will, right, or oh like God. just like without their input. What do you mean, like, Ronan warrior
0: th- figures totally pair up with the Sailor Moon figures, like? (laughs) I don't know what she's talking about.
1: Mars and Rio are
0: obviously together. They're both fire. We all
1: know we all know that. We all know that. No, but have your players, like, come up with it together and come up. Uh, again, the, the fate model is a good one with the aspects and stuff. But I th- it can be as simple as pick a person, figure out how you know each other and why you trust each other to work together or, like, want one story with each other or something. And the next person does it. And, again, make it that collaborative element. And that's a pretty low level of input, too. Like, there are some players who simply don't want to write a whole bunch of backstory and don't have a mind for it. Yeah. They are just kind of there to play. So maybe theirs is going to be simple. It's okay for some of them to be, like, funny. Right Like, ah, uh, we got really drunk together and ended up back to back in a bar fight one night. That's fine, too. Like it doesn't have to be yeah. dramatic, but like that is still some character history that is more than just we meet at a tavern. Mm-hmm. I'm a dwarf fighter, right? Like that's <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit more to go on totally. so. And I think personally, I like that kind of approach because I have found I used it for Star Wars back in the day, but I have found it to be useful pretty much regardless of genre. There's almost no game that would be role-played by a group of, you know, three to six people that that doesn't work for. Like, that's just a really good tool in the GM toolbox. Yeah, I'm definitely (laughs) putting that
0: in, in like, the back of my head now. I'm like, ah, I should have started you guys like that. That sounds so good.
1: You know how I learned that tool? By doing it the wrong way a thousand times and then just going, okay, how am I going to solve this problem? (laughs) You know, I think... um, You can also use that for, uh, if a future player shows up, just say like, hey, here are the players in our group. Hey, we got the new person coming in. You know, let's figure out how they pair off with at least one person in the group who already exists. Yeah, for sure. That's one way to hook them and create that way. The new person has some history. And there's some reason for the players to trust them, you know, all that kind of stuff, and brings it in. You can paper over any of that, like, who are you? How do we work together? Because some of that can be awkward, too. It can be just like, oh, I at some point, the party just goes, well, I guess we'll quest together. <laughs> like, it feels kind of awkward. We reach like, look... for the
0: same, like, wanted sign on a post.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Our hands brushed. <laughs> How do for we the... make
0: this meet cute happen? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, I'm gonna, oh no, I'm gonna table that for next time. It's like you slowly reach out and touch this, like, mercenary for hire sign, and as your hands brushed together, hey.
1: <laughs> oh, sorry, I just, I just wanted to kill six boars and bring the tusk, I didn't mean to. It's like, oh, uh, I mean,
0: like, sorry, I thought you were just, <laughs> I want to play this game. Oh. This sounds fun. Oh, goodness. I love hanging out with you, Grant. I love talking about about this. I love hanging out with you. I love talking about this stuff with you. It was a lot of
1: fun. I hope the people listening had fun too. um, Yeah. Exploring genre fiction and listening to me talk about funny shaved ice um, (laughs) for a long time. (laughs) Listen,
0: I will never not think about vanilla the same way. See?
1: The power of vanilla. Because
0: vanilla is personally my favorite flavor. It's really good. It's Because it's the base of all my other favorite flavors.
1: Like, it doesn't, like, all the other flavors are great too, but like, vanilla is very good. good. Like, good. Good vanilla. It's yeah. good vanilla. All right. Well, that that brings us to a close for our first episode of Adventure Tomes. Thank you for going the distance here yeah. with us. And uh, we'll be back next time with another book to explore, either genre fiction to explore mechanically or a more mechanical RPG to try to explore and figure out stories yep. that we can tell it in.
0: Hey, thanks, y'all. Have a good one.
1: Take care.